Nina, it has been a long time to try and get you on. <laughs> I've been very excited to have you on because I think that you are an incredible role model for our community. And I'm hoping that we can start from the very beginning and talk a little bit about your background, your family lineage, uh, and move forward. And towards the end, we'll get towards how Luna Float came about and sure. um, your involvement with Van City. So can you tell yeah. us a little bit about the beginning? Yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah, it's kind of funny. It's uh, a story. Uh, <laughs> is We had talked about me being part of Van City or working at Van City for just over 10 years. And then I left for about four years to pursue my dream of opening Luna Float. Right. In that four years, I got married. I had a baby. Uh, just, you know, had that whole pandemic thing happen. And um, I'm actually back at uh, Van City part-time as yes. well. So, ooh, surprise. But... Um, I'm Chilliwack born and raised. I also graduated from UFB. Um, yeah, there's just, there's a lot of stuff. Well, tell us about your family and your background, your connections with Stahelis and mm -hmm. all of that. Sure. So, yeah, like I said, Chilliwack born and raised. Um, my dad graduated from Stardust, my mom from Chilliwack. But on my mom's side, she's originally from Stahelis. Um, she... And her six, well, so she was born off reserve. Uh, actually, just recently uh, kind of came to light that um, her mom, my grandma, it was non Indigenous, and her dad, my grandpa, um, was from Stalis and uh, is Indigenous. And some of her siblings were born in Stalis um, on reserve, but they were still doing like there was day school, and like, and um, my grandma basically saw what was happening and moved them off reserve which was the whole thing and yeah. um yeah so they grew up mostly in lake Arok, but still with connections yeah. but um yeah and then eventually moved to chilliwack so that's where my family's from yeah my mom's maiden name's leon um and just yeah really close ties still uh, my aunt and uncle um caretake a bed and breakfast sasquatch eco lodge owned by um Stalis. Uh, so yeah, anytime I get a chance to go there, I do, um, or visit the community in general. I used to play soccer, um, and we'd go play there, or play on the island, and all sorts of stuff. Stahilis is like a very unique community, though, because it is one of the largest leaders, I think, on the west coast of indigenous communities, really working towards um, being self-sufficient, uh, developing their community in a way that they want, partnering with different communities. Mm -hmm. So, what is that like to to see? that growth because yeah. I think that it is it stands out amongst the rest in leadership and in um, pushing forward because when I was a native court worker I had the pleasure of meeting with um, Ralph Leon I believe junior mm -hmm. and talking to him about what their goals are for justice and some of their other projects and I think that they're really setting a strong example so mm -hmm. what has that experience been like to be able to work with them? Right so um, just recently I um, accepted a position sitting on the board for they call it Moitelec but it was previously known as the, the Dev Corp right the um, Economic Development Corporation for Stalis, which has been a huge honor to even be considered. And I just, like I said, I love any opportunity to go back into the community and on, like, it's interesting to be able to, I don't know, you're sitting on a board, sometimes it can be very bureaucratic and it's, or business, right? But um, there's something like just healing as well and like calming about it and just being around um, certain people in the community but uh, this Monday I have a board meeting and we're actually it's going to be at the bed and breakfast uh, at um, Sasquatch Eco Lodge 
and I'm excited because they make delicious food. And then we're actually finishing the meeting. Um, we're going out on doing a boat tour. I'm not sure who's doing it. Probably Kelsey or Willie Charlie. Um, and we're like, it's going to be like a cultural tour around Harrison. Yeah. So just a huge opportunity. Um, but to, yeah, to answer your question, like I wish I knew more of all the amazing stuff that they're doing because I know that they are doing stuff. A uh, highlight, I think, is... Um, I know I can't remember if we had talked about this before, but um, their work in the community of like bringing back youth, especially um, who've been who are in the system and have been removed from their their culture. And um, I know Willie Charlie um, in particular um, had a lot to do with that of bringing youth back into Salus. And you know, um, people that were working with the youth were like, "Oh, like they're not interested in that," and like it's probably like maybe they were like hesitant or didn't think there'd be as many benefits as there were like were but the proof was kind of there and um yeah it's just i feel like you know kind of our ways have been ignored or kind of steamrolled for so long and it's like no like there's something to it and people should be listening and learning and looking for different ways to do things that's awesome can you tell us a little bit about the history of stahelis um I mean, I probably can't tell you as much as other people can. Um, I mean, for me, my um, like my traditional or ancestral name is Polymia, and that is derived from my great grandfather Ed Leon Senior. And from what I understand about him, he unfortunately he passed away um, five years before I was born, um, nineteen eighty. And but I I love hearing stories about him. Kelsey Charlie had spent a lot of time with him, and um, I know he wrote a book. Um, well, he didn't write it, but he told it, and someone else wrote it for him because he um, didn't write. And it was called. Well, he wrote a couple, but Mr. Bear and the Baby was my favorite, and you can buy it at the Solo Gift Shop. Um, shameless plug. But um, so he had two traditional names, uh, and I'm learning more as I. Um, as I get older, but um, so his, I guess his more common name was actually from Suwali and it was uh, Shwalimuk, Shwalimuk. And um, his second name was Pulumquen. So Pulum is where I got my name from. And the Ia, like the I-Y-A at the end is just uh, kind of like a feminine form. It's to let um, people know that the name belongs to a female. Huh. And uh yeah, it was kind of interesting because obviously um, Staelis and the like surrounding communities we speak Kalkabalum and or traditionally and um, Polum Quen um, was actually from Lilwat, like from Lilouette. So it, I'm still learning actually. Like I had the the naming ceremony when I was 18 years old, and I'm 30. Oh, am I 36 now? Ooh. And uh, no, I'm 35. Ah. <laughs> and I'll be 36 soon. And um, yeah, just to recently find out that I thought my name was Halkamalem and it's potentially not. It's uh, yeah, from Lillooet. Wow, so. that's, that's amazing. And I think that na- naming ceremonies are often like not as acknowledged by other people because we don't have the opportunity to kind of share both of our names. And mm-hmm. I think that you're doing a really good job of tying that in to your LinkedIn page and to really trying to get the word out because mm-hmm. I think that it, those are those connections that 
help people understand where mm -hmm. you're from and what your background is. Yeah. And I think that another interesting aspect about Stahelis is the connection with, I guess, what we would call Sasquatch, mm -hmm. because they're one of the original people who kind of discovered it and had like ancient stories about it. Yeah. And I feel like um, the Mr. Bear and the Baby story, it doesn't talk about Sasquatch, but um, it's... And so, again, my grandpa, great-grandpa, um, funny guy, he was really good at, like, trapping, and um, he told stories. He just seemed like such a character, and he was very independent and free, and he kind of just did what he wanted, but he also was very instrumental in keeping the language and potlatches alive when it was illegal, and... Um, so I think he was a bit of a rebel. <laughs> and for me, I mean, it's been a journey. Uh, I'm very fortunate that like, even though my mom was born off the reserve, she had, you know, I think there was a lot of like, racism. Obviously, there was um, growing up. And there's that identity piece that's probably taken from her to a degree. Um, but again, because she kept a lot of ties and connections to her family, um, it wasn't like fully lost. But I, um, and then when we were in school, she actually went back and she became like a teacher's assistant with kind of like the indigenous lens. So she was a First Nations teacher's assistant and that put her in connection with more, um, like teachers and like, um, like knowledge keepers. And so she had a lot of like learnings through that, um, which I'm super grateful for. And I mean, growing up in Chilliwack, I had, I felt you know, I was far from that family in Staelis, um, but such a welcoming, connected people. And so I had cousins who were also from the Jimmy Reserve. So then all the Jimmys were just like, well, we're cousins now. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and um, it just felt connected. But um, growing up, like looking at me, people wouldn't assume maybe I was First Nations, which opens up a whole nother kind of weird I don't know, like opportunity for people to be racist in front of you because they don't know that they're going to offend you. And um, not that that's better. I obviously have like a lot of privilege behind that as well. Um, but as I got older, um, you know, I play soccer and then I would get questioned, prove that you're native, right? And I was like, okay, well, that's my mom, that's my cousin, you know. Um, and so that was something I grew up with, with, was feeling, I don't know, kind of like scared to be myself or not knowing what that was and not you know, knowing where I belong um you know what's my place and stuff like that and it's it's ironic because again um working at Van City of all places um helped me kind of rediscover that connection um I was planning a um an executive retreat and I was I was always been proud in of my community of Stalis and so I reached out to them and I was like could we, could we do something like that? I know there's like a lot of storytellers. I know there's so much culture and it's a beautiful space. And again, any excuse to just be out there. And so we did it. And it just was so reaffirming that this is where I belong. And again, I keep on saying Willie, Charlie and Kelsey Charlie. Um, it was the um, Charlie Longhouse where we had our naming ceremony. And uh, he just said, like he talked about my lineage he talked and like that's like they're just so amazing to listen to them speak and to have someone know so much about your your family and their history and to also just include you in that and that like this is like he basically said like this is your birthright you but like you belong here <laughs> and i needed to hear that because i mean i felt it but 
I don't know, I also, I guess, had doubts as well, right? And so, yeah, that was really just, again, really good medicine. And um, I knew I wanted to do something more along the line. Like, just I wanted any excuse to go back into the community and be a part of it in any way I can. Um, so in kind of a roundabout way, I mean, now I'm on the, the more intellect board, which is awesome and still learning more and, and sitting back and, and watching and learning, um, contributing however I can. But, um, yeah. And then, um, I think, I guess not necessarily directly to my community, but, um, Stalo in general, I've sat on the Stalo Community Futures Lending Committee, um, part of the Stalo Business Association, um, yeah, just wanting to. Can you tell us more about what that struggle was like between the two communities? Because I think that that's something that is a deep problem Indigenous people have. My mom mm -hmm. had it because she was part of the 60s scoop. So mm -hmm. she was taken in by this Caucasian family um, mm -hmm. that ended up helping, helping a fair bit. But then she always felt this disconnect between both communities, mm -hmm. uh, Chawathal and her Caucasian family, because she didn't feel like she was 100% in either camp. Mm -hmm. And she's she still struggles with that today. And I think that that is one area where the disconnect from culture is important for people to understand because it's like you're, you're, you have one foot in both camps mm -hmm. and you don't feel fully accepted by either. And having somebody just be able to say, hey, like you're accepted here. This is your family. Mm -hmm. You have a right to be here. Nobody can take this away from you is something mm -hmm. that I think helps people to feel more comfortable and that acceptance of being brought onto boards and, and being brought mm -hmm. back into the community makes a big difference for people. So can you tell us about some of those struggles at certain points where maybe you wanted to reach out and you didn't know how or you didn't know mm -hmm. how to reconnect with the culture in the right way or any of those types of stories? Yeah, I mean, I can't speak on behalf of my mom, but I know that she, I know that she would be able to relate with that, I'm sure, um, especially going to like high school and stuff like that, where I mean, she graduated in the 70s and now she still is in the school system teaching. And there's books that they still unfortunately use now that are so old and it's like, just, it's racist, it's bad, it's bad. <laughs> like, they shouldn't be having these books in there. Um, yeah, just the way they're describing them in this like, kind of like anthropology way of like, oh yes, the local Indian is you know, they have coarse features and small hands. Like, it was just yeah. weird. And, like, these are books that are, were still in, the, like, the system, like, now. And, you know, she, yeah, I feel like probably didn't feel like she, fat, like, fit in in either way. But she's a strong, confident woman, and, and she's very resilient and amazing. But, um, yeah, so I think I maybe fed off of that, yeah. her just her confidence. And, um, yeah. And then, again, having family just support you and and let you know that you belong but um I think it's the hardest part is now like not like not that it's popular to be indigenous but it's people are a little bit more hungry for that knowledge and they just assume now like okay like, like the steps of me um it felt like not knowing necessarily where I fit in um and then people accepting that, oh, okay, so you are, you are Indigenous, you are First Nations, and you have family in Stalis, but what does that mean? Or they just assume, especially as my role in like Stalo Business Association, 
that now I know everything about indigenous culture and First Nations culture and um, like I must be fluent in the language and they kind of put those on you when it's like no we're still very much like the learnings that people have are it's a privilege to learn about our culture and um, sometimes you know non-indigenous people who who have who've done the work which is really awesome but then they just assume that every indigenous person yeah. knows the same thing and it's like no like this was it was try like it had been tried to be taken away from us in such a brutal way that we're slowly getting to like relearn it and i remember it was kind of unfortunate. I had most of my learnings and reconnecting through the community because of tragedy. It'd be because of someone had passed away in the community and, or someone was sick and we would go to a ceremony um, or we'd go to a funeral and then I'd learn a little bit more about the culture and, and people were slowly, like elders were slowly sharing that, that information. And yeah, so it's kind of a sad way to learn, learn about your culture, but I'm grateful that, you know, it happened and that there were opportunities for that, for sure. Yeah, I think that that is definitely a hard part, especially right now, because I think there is this deep hunger for the language and mm -hmm. for learning about the stories and what it means to be Indigenous. But I think that Indigenous people are put in a rock and a hard place of the regular society wants to learn more. And I've had mm -hmm. a lot of people reach out wanting to do like um, Indigenous awareness training and how do we communicate that mm -hmm. information in an effective way that brings people together. But at the same time, it's like a lot of us are still trying to gain that understanding and learn mm -hmm. more about it to be able to share that. And so we're in this weird circumstance of like, tell me more. And it's like, well, we're still learning. Yeah. And how am I supposed to play both hands and play this important role and then I think for some people, they've had that disconnect and now they don't know. And mm -hmm. people are like, well, tell me about your culture. And they're like, you took it. This is, well, not you, but yeah. like I've had this stolen from me. I've had this stolen from my mm -hmm. family. And now you want me to tell you all about all mm -hmm. the great qualities about it. And it's like, it's a little late for that. This would have been nice before all of the tragedies occurred because mm -hmm. it is and it always has been an interesting culture to understand and to see the depth of it. because. One thing I really, I really took away from the Eddie Gardner interview was how he described creatures. Because I think in Western culture, bugs are somehow looked down on because mosquitoes, bees, things mm -hmm. that like might be inconvenient. Yet he described them as the ones that crawl. And I thought that that was such an interesting way to go about And we didn't end up talking about it, but there's the, that idea there that he's talking about them as if they're equal to him, as if mm -hmm. there isn't, he's not better than them. And I think that that's something western culture really struggles with because we do talk about all of these things as if they're not intelligent as if they're less than as if they're just tools for our own success and i think mm -hmm. that that misses some of the beauty of our culture in that we do have this symbiotic relationship with most things mm -hmm. that other cultures especially western culture doesn't mm -hmm. and i think that you see it a little bit with hunting because i do think that most hunters um they a lot of their proceeds go towards supporting ecosystems and stuff mm -hmm. but there's that deep divide right now with this relationship with food, with animals, with the relationship we have with our ecosystems that we think we're on top. And mm -hmm. so that everything else we can just fix if there's problems. And I think that that's probably the wrong way about going oh, totally. about that. It's funny, um, <laughs> like for the longest time. And it's, it's funny because the way you learn about your culture again, or is like, there's, it comes from different 
angles, comes from different ways. And I think just like being around family and there's maybe even slang or like um, one of my coworkers was, what does OCM mean? Can you, and like, I was like, how do you spell OCM? And then I'm thinking like, because I'm like, if you're hip, you just type out OCM, right? right. I'm like, that's like just the slang. And I'm like, mm. so it's kind of funny learning it through that kind of uh, lens um, or all my relations, yeah. all my relations. This is like kind of a funny um admitting this but for like when i was younger like we always said that and i always thought it might because we have so many cousins all my relations we can't keep track but like obviously i like learned um later on that like it means more like all our relations like how we're interconnected with everything and and the animals and the creatures and the world right yeah that seven generations idea i think is just it needs to be stressed again and again and again because right now i feel like we have this like hunger for like what is our our purpose here why are we mm-hmm. here what's the point of it all and i see these ideas of like well the goal is to be happy and the goal is to have mm-hmm. a good day and like self care and it's like the idea is so much deeper than that because it's like you the idea in indigenous culture is like you have a responsibility to the seven generations before you mm-hmm. and when um i just talked to andrew victor and the idea that you they had prayers about what their next generations would do and would see and would experience. And you can only Mm -hmm. imagine what the prayers of people going through Indian residential school would be, what their hopes would be for their Mm -hmm. children and their grandchildren and their great grandchildren. And you can, you can imagine that they were hoping that we would get out of this and that some of this tragedy would come to an end. And Mm -hmm. I think that we're seeing that today. It's a lot of the tragedies have at least stopped getting worse. Mm -hmm. And so. We have a responsibility to those individuals who survived hell to mm-hmm. pay that forward to the next generations and to help the next generations do better. And that idea that we look back seven generations mm-hmm. and look forward seven generations, it puts such an enormous amount of weight on an individual because you try and think of all, like, I can barely keep track of two generations back, <laughs> let alone seven, mm-hmm. and what they would have been thinking. And then you try and think seven generations forward, and that's just as difficult yeah. because we're in this cycle of new iPhone, new laptop, what's my what's my plan for my family? Mm-hmm. We, get, we forget that this is bigger than all of us, that this has a longer-term outlay of mm-hmm. what's seven generations forward. You're likely... Like, they're not going to remember our names in seven generations and who we were and what we were thinking at this time. And so Mm -hmm. we're working for those individuals and trying to support the people behind us. I think that that is a far better, more meaningful way to live a life because when you are carrying a lot of stress or weight, Mm -hmm. it's all for a greater purpose. And I think that that's something that's really missing from our community. No, that's the perfect uh, way to say it because, I mean, I've struggled with anxiety and mental health and I feel like anxiety, there's that overwhelming sense that you just have all of this weight on your shoulder and um, the people that I look up to the most in our community, they have this just natural calm about them and it's like a slow, purposeful, just intent and they just kind of, and I think, like what how can they be like that when they're also caring so much and doing so much but um yeah it's like you just strive to to have that or you being be close to that energy and i think it's because yeah you you're not thinking about well a you're removing the ego piece right it's not about you um and you know if it's like the ecosystem everything's connected but it's like that one salmon you caught or that one deer that you've killed and but you're and you just focus on the one thing and you're not 
being overwhelmed by everything else, right? So it's just like having the intent and the purpose behind it and yeah. Yeah, there's a different energy when I was speaking to both Eddie and Andrew about their mindset and how they approach things. There was like, I really quickly realized, because I'm a pretty quick talker, I'm I'm fairly fast-paced, um, and then just sitting there and being like, I need to slow my brain down because <laughs> this is not the pace that they're thinking at or trying to work towards. The goal to them is to deliver the message in a clear, calm fashion mm-hmm. rather than trying to get out the, the next point as fast as possible. And I think that that's something when I'm in law school, the the gold standard is to be say the thing as fast as you can, <laughs> as yeah. concise as you can. And that element of delivering the information so that people are paying attention yeah. and hearing what you're saying and being able to flow along and having listeners reach out and go like, I just felt like at peace when I was listening to him talk was like, wow, that is something I don't have. Like, at this stage of my life, I don't have that that calm sense yeah. of tranquility that others have. <laughs> and that's actually, yeah, that's one of my goals, I think, or like I want to work towards. Um, I speak when I do any speaking stuff. It's not because I'm a gifted speaker by any means. It's more of like a self kind of proclaimed um, exposure therapy, like being anxious. Um, it's not something I particularly want to do is speak in public, but I don't know. I feel like I, it's something like you know, looking for the lesson or trying to grow and improve on something. So if I'm not good at something, I want to, to be better. Um, and I feel like there's something there that I need to learn. Um, and I feel like sometimes, I don't know if it's like self-proclaimed ADHD where my thoughts are happening faster. And so I just try to want, I want to get them all out. And so my, I call it verbal diarrhea. It's just like, blah. So sometimes when I'm speaking, as much as I want to be prepared, I also, a double-edged sword kind of fine line to cross but part of me wants to be open to whatever my ancestors tell me I need to talk about today and just kind of go with it um but then that sometimes I'm like hmm, I wonder what's going to come out of my mouth today yeah. um that's something I don't think people are honest enough about <laughs> is that for the most part it's not like I'm going when I'm speaking that I'm going I'm going to say the sky and like going through each word, it's mm-hmm. like you have an idea in your head and the words are just kind of flowing. And it's like you're thinking while you're speaking because you don't exactly know what the next sentence is going to be mm-hmm. because it's all part of this bigger whatever yeah, you're talking about. Wood. If you're trying to explain like what Luna float is, mm-hmm. there's so much to it that it's whatever is coming out first. Yeah. It's not like, OK, I always go first. I talk about this and then I talk about this and then mm-hmm. like your brain doesn't really work like that. And so I think that it's important that we give people that grace Mm -hmm. and that's why i like the the three-hour format is because we'll get there and Mm -hmm. we don't have to stress so much about like Mm -hmm. i need to make sure that i mention this that or the other thing we're just having a conversation and it will go where it needs to go over time Mm -hmm. and i think that that really helps people not have that stress on them yeah i try to if i do try to explain to anyone it's sometimes like you're talking on a phone and i guess now i'm thinking about this i think it still happens with cell phones but i was thinking an old older school phone landline um when you're talking and you can hear like yourself kind of like echoing sometimes when i'm talking i feel like i'm hearing myself like what I just said versus it, it's just it's a strange phenomenon so practicing the pause is what I, I try to think of I also used to really not like silence so it would just like to have someone not respond right away it's like maybe I'll just keep on talking because they're not they're not responding yet and just learning that like just to appreciate that pause and 
it's a time to absorb what you just listened to. And I don't know, just like, a, again, it's a more calm way. Not saying that one way is better or worse or, um, but it's definitely something I, yeah, I also really appreciate and try to take um, as a lesson and, and trying to do it myself a little bit better uh, of just being okay if I have to like pause and think about what someone asked me because, yeah. And giving yourself that space to kind of prepare a response rather than mm -hmm. trying to come out with the first thought that pops into your head because yeah. that might not always be the best one. Yeah. Can you tell us about going from high school into university? What decisions were you making at that time? Because mm -hmm. it jumps out at me that you were so interested in like the business side of things. Yeah. What yeah. pulled you in that direction? I kind of yeah, skimmed past my, my childhood and all that stuff, which is, which is fine. Uh, <laughs> fine by me. But it's interesting. Um, where I am now um, and then looking back I was so it's kind of funny when I was younger I was like the kid on the corner doing selling freezies and, and that sort of thing so I always have had this kind of entrepreneurial spirit my sister my younger sister would help out and I would pay her and I actually calculated profit and like at a young age like, I had these little books and ledgers it was I was a nerd um, I loved going into the bank and getting the rate sheets it's it's so strange because um, my sister is definitely not like that <laughs> um, so I don't know where I really got it from but uh, and then in high school I mean I mean, I was a B honor student, like I was doing pretty good, um, had a lot of stresses put on me because of that. Like, I don't know, you just feel like you have to, I don't know, they put so much stress on high school students. I'm sure they still do that. You have to have your whole life figured out. Um, you know, I mean, they do like, oh, you have to take this grade 12 course in grade 10 to make sure it all fits on your syllabus. And, um, I had no idea. I really liked sciences. I loved biology. I loved animals. Um, I worked at a vet's clinic, um, for a brief moment, just part of the workplace program, which was great because it taught me that I didn't want to become a vet. <laughs> I loved animals and the vet just, um, seeming, I mean, she, they did amazing work, but they were doing a lot of prescriptions and the surgeries and it wasn't, it was the vet techs that were doing more of the hands-on with the animals and and there was like lots of other stuff that I was like, mm, okay, maybe not. But, you know, that was my dream as a kid. And so it was kind of nice to have that um, experience to find out before you take seven years of veterinarian school, if this is actually something you would want to do in the environment you want to work in. So I was like, hmm, maybe that's not the the, the course for me. Um, I, even though, like I said, uh, a honor student, I graduated, I paused and was like, I kind of stumbled and I was scared of going to university and taking that next step. Um, I kind of forgot about that, but yeah, it was, it was scary. I even, I tried to stay back and take like a grade 13, like physics and chemistry course because I just wasn't sure yet. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And it, that huge lesson there was just that like, keep moving forward. Cause at that point I was, I was like moving back. I was or at least staying still and not, and like refusing to move forward because fear of failure really. Um, and I think my, yeah, my biggest takeaway from there was just keep moving forward. You don't have to have it all figured out because there's learnings and mistakes and like kind of embracing yeah. making a mistake, take a course that sucked and or that you didn't, didn't like, but get, guess what? The learning is like you, that's not for you. And, or there's other, other things that happen when you, you go down a path and you're not quite sure where you're going. Um, you know, there's sometimes reasons for it, or at least for me, that's what I try to take away when, you know, we're talking about adversity. Um, sometimes it's hard for me to think about it because 
whenever I'm given something that's an obstacle or, you know, not the greatest, I, I tend to try to turn it into a, a learning. And I'm not saying that's necessarily the best thing. It's probably a trauma response, but um, that's what I try to do. Um, so yeah, I kind of, it was slow, slow transition into going to UFB, but I did. And I just did that. I started with a couple of courses, sciences. Um, I took biology, chemistry, math, all of these things. And um, wasn't loving it. I mean, I love biology, but just, and then I'm like, okay, I'm going to get this degree in biology and like, a, I guess a bachelor of science degree then what and so even early on like within the first couple semesters I was like and my parent I asked my parents like hey you know me like what um what should I do and this is something I miss um that I miss like not growing up in my community is what they do when babies are first born they they all the elders all the family watch them and they let them be babies they let them be kids and play but through play you learn a lot about a person and potentially what path they're going to take and usually by the time they reach puberty, they're more ushered into this, like, and guided into a, a more of a role. Like, hey, we've been watching you, and this is what your your yeah. skills are. And I really wish I had that kind of guidance. And, I mean, my parents are amazing, and they they did reflect and say, well, you know, you've always been bossy, and <laughs> maybe you'll be a good boss, or you should be in, like, entrepreneurship or something, or try something in business. I think the um, they had brought up dietitian because I would tell people what to do, and that would at least be um, take part of my science learnings and stuff like that. But I took a marketing marketing course, um, and it's also funny. So I took a marketing course with Mark Breedveld, who it, he was in his first. Um, year of teaching this was many years ago and I, I just laugh where I think it's funny because he actually just reached out to me recently and he's now like the head of I think the marketing department or maybe even the business department at UFB um and he saw me found me on LinkedIn and we, we reconnected and talked about some stuff but um yeah I thought marketing was was cool um it kind of has different elements like my I ended up getting a business degree and focused on finance and accounting, but my electives were philosophy and psychology. And I actually, right before I opened LunaFloat, I re-enrolled and thought I was going to get a second degree in psychology. Yeah. I'm super passionate about it, but um, yeah, apparently starting a business is really time consuming. And so it kind of petered out and I was like, okay, I need to focus on this, but it's always just been something that I like learning about. Um, so marketing was kind of my gateway into business. And I started taking more courses and then I realized that at least if I have a business degree, maybe there's more different kind of opportunities. And, um, you know, I was really envious. I even considered becoming like a dental hygienist because I was envious of my friends who were in trades who it was like, okay, you do four years, but you're also on the job training. And after it, you know exactly what you're going to be. You're going to be an electrician or you're going to be a plumber. And um, I still, yeah, I didn't like that unknown because again, this was my lesson to learning to just take those steps, even though you don't know what necessarily the final result's going to be, just go through, go through the steps and go through the motions. Um, I really, another kind of weird learning was um, I was really good at communications and human resources. Again, human resources, a lot of the psychological elements behind it about people, right? In general, we're, we're odd people, we're odd things to study. And yet I kind of struggled more with accounting and finance. And it, back then I, I felt like there was more, if it was difficult, if it was hard, it was maybe more rewarding or it was almost like better. Yeah. 
when like because I was like, oh, this is this HR is too easy, and, but maybe I should have focused on that. I don't know. So in the end, um, I actually got a job at Van City. I heard about Van City um, through a presentation at UFB. One of the um, students did. And I was like, that's a cool, cool company to work for. And so I inquired and I, I got a job as a teller, a bank teller, called a financial service representative. And yeah, I started early on. Like I had basically, after I graduated, I worked at Stream. Most people have worked at Stream, yeah. the call center. Um, and yeah, I worked there for three years and then Van City. And then I worked at Van City for, like I said, just over 10 years. Uh, I basically was working and putting myself through school, um, which is can be expensive. And so I had I ended up having to work full time. I, I was promoted or I worked my way up to an account manager, account manager one at the time. So um, doing loans and mortgages and that sort of thing. And I couldn't I was working Monday, Tuesday to Saturday, I guess. And there were, weren't a lot of courses available that maybe even interested me and the ones that were available were like night courses seven o'clock to ten o'clock and they were a lot of finance and accounting courses so that's basically why i ended up getting a finance and a, an accounting degree i also thought maybe i want to keep my doors open um and i thought maybe i'd become an accountant one day because that um my neighbor was an accountant growing up and she she seemed like she had it figured out she uh um, kind of worked for herself and picked what kind of job she wanted to do. And there was, it seemed like a lot of autonomy there, which apparently I, yeah, I wanted autonomy. And um, I got to this point where I had worked my way up at Van City so much that I, I had a good, like I had good benefits. I had good pay. And if I even wanted to go um, and become like an accountant, I'd have to start out as like, a, I think they call it like an articling student or yeah. I had taken like, a, it was almost like a $10 like pay decrease or something. And I was like, oof. And I mean, that was my dream. If I was super passionate, obviously, sometimes you do have to take a couple steps back in order to move forwards. Um, but it obviously wasn't in my heart. It wasn't um, something I was super passionate about. So after I had my degree, I mean, it actually helped me in my career at Ben City. So again, kind of an example of how I didn't really know where my you know, life was going with Van City. Um, it was just, it was a, just the job at the beginning of it, but it actually kind of became the core of a lot of my, my stories and my life um, endeavors after that. I definitely want to hear more about that, but I do want to wrap up our discussion of university because sure. I think for a lot of Indigenous people, I don't know if it's as common now, mm -hmm. but there are Indigenous people who feel like going to university is leaving their culture. And I think that that's something I saw a lot of my peers in high school and middle school struggle with is this idea that you're now going to the institution, mm -hmm. you're not going back to the community. And mm -hmm. just even within my community, just kind of seeing the individuals who get supported through university and the individuals who didn't, yeah. um, the individuals who are more connected to their community, it didn't mm -hmm. seem like they were getting the supports to go off leave their community mm. and get the education. And I've heard through a few other people that leaving made their community kind of look at them differently or go like, oh, now you're off being big city, big successful person. Mm -hmm. You're not as connected to us. And so I think that it's important for listeners to understand that you're actually bringing the two back together. And through mm -hmm. your experiences in university, you're actually bringing a lot of that knowledge and expertise yeah. back to the community to help them. But the other part that I think is important that you mentioned was this idea that you kind of go down a path and now you should kind of stick with it because you already started it. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's there's an analogy there of like 
hiking a mountain. And then if you get halfway up and realize this isn't going to get me to the top, are you going to be the person who goes back down and are willing to go back down and then come back up the right way? Mm -hmm. Or are you just going to stay there? And I think I know a lot of people who got hesitant mm -hmm. and stayed in the position that they were in because yeah. of this hesitation of why going back down the mountain is like a, is a step down. And it's like yeah. for the short term, perhaps, but in the long term, you actually end up getting all of these benefits. And so that decision to go to university and leave high school mm -hmm. was one of those processes, it sounds like, for you to be like, you know what, I am going to take this step and move forward and take the risk. Yeah. And I think that that's obviously paid dividends long term. Mm -hmm. And so I'm interested to know more about any of the courses that you took there that you found impactful or that stood mm -hmm. out to you amongst the rest, if there were any professors there that were really insightful or offered mm -hmm. that guidance. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, I I feel like again, like in retrospect, it's helped me bring things to the community. And even just recently, there there have been some community members who were like, "Who are these people?" And they don't recognize my last name, Zetches, right? Is my married name. So like, well, who's this person on the board? Like, why are they on our board? Like, they're not from the community. And like, that's that's totally fair. Um, Candace Charlie, she's this amazing, inspiring woman as well, who um, who lives in Salus, and she was on the Dev Corp, and now she has a different role, a um, very important role in the community. And she has her master's degree, and she she uses it to benefit everyone in her community. And um, I feel like that is the trend now: is is that more people are who want to and are able to are getting that education. Um, because they see how it can potentially benefit the, themselves in the community. But I also agree that there's many people who probably are still um, a little intimidated or, I mean, I would compare like the institution, like the educational institution as similar to a financial institution. So that's something that I've struggled with being part of the financial institution of people um, not wanting to come in because there's this fear of judgment um, and I think there's a lot of work to be done to like decolonize both institutions. Um, it depends on the, you know, how I'm feeling. University, obviously, like I have a degree, but there are days that I felt like I bought a degree, you know, like you go in and you're memorizing um, stuff to basically pass a test. And then you get your piece of paper and be like, okay, hire me because I have this piece of paper versus, oh, I'm super passionate about this subject. And I think I wish there were uh, ways where they could implement something where it's there were less barriers for people to become educated or to learn about something that they're passionate about or something that's going to help them help themselves or their community. Um, I'm trying to think of like there's a lot of teachers that were there that were um, that were good. I'm thinking of economics um, and how. I don't know when I was in school. Um, I'm like actually like I'm not the, like I'm going to be hating on this the university at all. But um, there were some teachers, being that it was business, that it was very um, capitalistic. And back in the day, like that far removed, I was like, yeah, this makes sense, capitalism, efficiencies, and all this stuff. But as I got older, um, my vision and my I guess views on that had have definitely changed. I mean, I'm a business owner, so you'd think, why don't you believe in capitalism, or or why do you have a, a beef with that? And I mean, truth be told, like if um, 
I would have potentially started Luna Float as a cooperative kind of movement if that was something that was could have been done a little bit easier. Um, yeah, and I'm I'm a terrible business owner. I would just do it for free and let everyone do it. But um, I mean, there was definitely obviously it helped me in different ways um, get the job at Van City. It helped um, educate me um, to be part of these boards and stuff like that. Um, builds confidence. So there's so many reasons to do it, even if it's to learn what you like and what you don't like. Um, I feel like now I know that, um, is it Shirley Hardman is the head of, um, of the department at UFB that um, has more of a focus for Indigenous, um, I guess, probably students and just curriculum and everything like that. And I don't think maybe they're even utilized as much as they should be. But I liked seeing that because I think that would make people feel more comfortable being on campus and and exploring that. Um, I think that it doesn't have to be either or. Like you have to be cultural and and part of the community or you go to university and and um get higher education that kind of thing and i mean higher education like what does that mean it just it's just different education right um i think both are valuable and there doesn't have to be this either or situation um i think the world is constantly evolving and changing and being more having more tools and having more background is is always going to be good it's like diversifying right um yeah i think i know like as older as i get the more i realize that i know less than i think <laughs> when i was younger i thought i knew a lot more um but i've always been um like i consider myself like a lifelong learner like i want to learn more and i'm open to new ideas and um i give myself grace to to be wrong and to to change my my views on things yeah. right so i don't mean i don't know if i really answered your question um i think going to university is so much more than education too it's it's making connections um it's growing um and i think like i've also learned about my own family through education through um papers that i found like googling ed leon senior and um Sa'elis, and i've found um papers written by people who are getting their master's degree in um, New Zealand, even, or UBC. Um, and they're actually, so there is like a crossover, um, you know, that the institutions are um, also helping us rebuild our culture. Yeah. And um, again, because our, a lot of our culture is oral, um, having it with permission recorded. And for me, I'm like, I'm eternally grateful for that because it's helping me rediscover myself as well. Yeah. So I don't know if that was kind of a roundabout way. Of... No, and I, I don't disagree that I think <laughs> mm -hmm. that the universities do struggle with connecting because I think right now there's such a lean towards the administrative side. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, John Haidt, who is a past guest, was kind of talking about what's going on in the U.S. where their mm -hmm. administrative side has gotten so big and their support mm -hmm. for professors has gotten so small mm -hmm. that... There isn't this feeling, to me at least, that when you're going to a university, you're getting taught by professors. It's mm -hmm. like the professors get told what they need to tell the students, yeah. and that's how we're approached. Because to me, 
if UFE wanted to step up their game and they were serious about it to me, mm -hmm. they would start highlighting the professors and yeah. what the professors think and have YouTube clips that are able to be posted on social media of mm -hmm. what they're talking about in their classes. Because to me, that's the only thing missing yeah. from all of the marketing I see them doing every single day is mm -hmm. they're talking about how they're celebrating this day and that day and all of these days, but they're not telling this is what you get out of a business degree. This is what makes mm -hmm. you a different creature than when you came in is because now you're going to be able to negotiate. You're going to be able yeah. to communicate clearly. You're going to be able to um, argue for better pay. You're mm -hmm. going to be able to write papers that make arguments for more funding from funder. Like exactly. you're going to be able to do all of these important things that are yeah. going to make the difference in your company or in your future business. To mm -hmm. me, that's like the only thing they're not talking about, which seems crazy because yeah. for most people, they're like, like examples of individuals who started businesses without having the degree mm -hmm. to me they should still want to go just to get like one accounting course so they can do their books a little bit better yeah. or one marketing course just to get a better idea but again the, the university doesn't even advocate for taking a few courses just to mm -hmm. hone a skill or something like that which yeah. again to me seems like they're missing a whole market yeah. because they're only marketing 18 to 30 year olds and mm -hmm. they don't really touch the other subsection of the population yeah and i mean so that makes me think of a couple things. It took me a long time to get my degree, but a four-year degree it probably took me about seven years mm -hmm. <laughs> because I was working and, and going to school. Um, at some point later on in like the tail end of, of those courses, I was older, uh, like much older than some of the like first-year students who were coming right out of high school. Um, and yeah, they're in taking like entrepreneurship courses or diff different business courses. And it was, I felt old and I mean, I hadn't, I didn't have a business experience per se in that I didn't own a business, but I had a lot of experience through Van City and just basic finance stuff, right? Like financial literacy that we'll probably talk about later. Yeah. Um, and so there was a disconnect or we'd be in like a human relation or um, human resource class or talking about labor relations. And there's someone who sits next to me who's never actually had a job. Mm. And I'm like, how are you, how can you be learning about labor relations when you've never been in the labor force yeah. like um so yeah there, i agree that there, there needs to be like that hands-on as well like and very like intentional like we're learning this and this is how it applies to the real world i think people sometimes um not that it's not the real world but they're focused on like higher like the higher education piece or um learning about that but kind of how does it apply to your life and and um yeah, that's and that's a, that's a big problem for some professors who are only in institutions mm -hmm. their whole career. They get their undergrad, yeah. then they get their master's, then they get their PhD, and now they're telling young people how yeah. the world is yeah. when, in my view, they haven't experienced a sufficient amount of the pitfalls mm -hmm. or frustrations of living in the real world that yeah. you develop through having a bad job where your employer isn't great to you or having mm -hmm. um trying to start a business and maybe it doesn't work out and having these real world experiences where you kind of hit a brick wall yeah. and you kind of wake up because i had a few professors who put like um one professor was like i'm not indigenous so i'm not allowed to talk about indigenous issues so aaron why don't you talk about it and yeah. it's like oh well i actually am not educated like i've taken first nations 12 and i've yeah. taken maybe a, like a course and a half on this mm -hmm. but i'm not an expert and i'm not the right person to be talking about yeah. this but her mindset is i'm i'm not the person to do it so since you're indigenous yeah you are and that puts so much weight like and i've been in that situation and yeah. i feel shame i feel doubt about like again identity and it's like oh if i don't know x y and z and i can't just answer like that then 
maybe I'm not indigenous. Yeah, enough yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And that's super unfair. I will give a shout out. I'm like, I hope we don't get him in trouble. But Ian Affleck comes up. He was a math teacher. And I, ironically enough, was not great at calculus math. I liked, I did decent in stats. I love math equations where you're solving a problem, like algebra, geometry. I don't know. But um, yeah, calculus just wasn't working for me and i had been getting a and b's i get to university now it's like okay b's b minuses c pluses i'm like what's a c plus oh my goodness um but i straight up failed calculus the first semester um like failed and then another four hundred dollars plus a textbook because it changes halfway through the semester and i take it again i'm not telling my parents because i'm in my like shame and um yeah, I take I take it again. I get like another letter grade up, which I think was like a P or a C minus or something. And I need a C plus for it to like be worth anything in the overall piece of the pie, right, of um, my degree. So I'm like, okay, take it a third time. Erin, yeah. that is like $1,200 just for one course. And I think I got a C. And I was just like heartbroken. I'm like, was that it? Like that's like I tried and I mean... I didn't make it. So like, that's it. And like, you needed a C plus to be in business or in sciences. So I was like, I guess this is not cut out for me. So there's another opportunity for me to just peace out. Um, but I knew at that time I, I was, I knew that I wanted to be, learn more about business and I liked the other courses. It was just this other course that was just hanging on and causing me grief. And Ian was one of those teachers for one of those times. And I talked to him because he was a really good teacher and I felt almost like me not getting my C plus was like, like I let him down because he, it wasn't a reflection on his teaching. He was patient and he, he was thoughtful in the way he taught. Um, so I just talked to him and I was like, I guess I suck. Like, what do, what do I need to do? He, he helped, um, trying to teach me <laughs> on my level um, to grasp it. And he actually, I don't get, I don't want to get him in trouble, but he let me go into calculus. He let me bypass the prereq of getting a C plus to get into the, the course that I needed, which was like calculus two or whatever. And it seems kind of like, well, that's silly. Like why, if you can't even pass or you can't get a C plus in calculus one, why would you want to go into calculus two or why would they let you in? But he did. And first try, like same amount of effort. And I got like a B minus or like a C plus in that course. And it, it was so much easier. It was so much better. And this was supposed to be like a second level. So I don't know. But the point was that someone like cared enough to listen. And it wasn't just like a, you don't fit in this box. So, cause that's so easy for someone like not to like give myself accolades, but when you're in that shame and you're just like, Ugh, you could just, it's easy enough to just slip into the background and no one would notice someone dropping out. Like I'm sure lots of people do it. Um, so yeah, I think that was a pivotal moment for me to, that someone believed in me and that was, you know, it was a barrier and yeah. I think that that's a really important story because I think that that happens to so many students Mm -hmm. and we don't talk about our failures. We only talk about our GPAs and how great they are and, and try and show off that side of us that when somebody does do less successful in a course (laughs) that we feel that sense of judgment and discouragement and then we don't want to say anything to anyone because Mm -hmm. we feel like they're going to see it and I think that for 
for people like Rebecca, I think one of the issues is being able to share that with your family because they don't even mm -hmm. know what it means to take a university course, yeah. let alone what it means to not do well in a course. Mm -hmm. And so they're not able to be understanding and be able to say, you know what, like, to me, it's really important that I always stress that grades really, for the most part, don't matter at all mm -hmm. because it's a perception and you should measure somebody. And if it was possible, measure somebody on their effort to understand mm -hmm. the information more than trying to figure out whether or not they checked a box because yeah. a person can continue to develop over time if they're encouraged to do so. Just like it sounds like with this course, yeah. if you had been judged based on your effort and, and time put into it rather mm -hmm. than purely based on a mark on an exam, which yeah. is somewhat arbitrary as well, because I'd have professors who would tell us exactly what all the questions are going to be before an exam. And yeah. then I'd have other professors who would say, uh, we're not going to tell you, or they'd tell us, and none of that information was on the exam. Yeah. So there's this vast inconsistency with what professors expect on an exam, what yeah. their mindset is. Because I had one professor who had 12 essay questions and yeah. have at her two hours. And it's like, yeah. where should I focus more of my time? What's more important? How much yeah. information do you need for this question? Like all of these questions. Yeah. And so for him to say, you don't understand this information, it's like, no, you asked broad questions and I yeah. did the best I could with the information. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're definitely, yeah, you're open to interpretation. I first, I liked open-ended ones because I could massage, you know, my answer. Um, to describe that, hey, I don't really remember what that word was because I haven't memorized it, but I get the general feel of it and like, here's what I know. So I would just like dump like all of my brain goo onto the page. And that worked sometimes for biology. I at least get like half marks because they're like, they could tell that I kind of generally knew, but I just forgot a couple of words or um, philosophy. I did awesome in with that because I was able to just kind of go down there. Uh, English, I came across that it was one of, I didn't care for. Uh, it was a, um, an opinion piece that you had to write and I feel like my teacher just graded me because I didn't like my opinion and I was like rude <laughs> and discouraging but it's yeah it's not just one um one person or one scenario it's it's having that help throughout your journey as well like I remember I mean I, I carried a lot of pressure on myself and I remember even in elementary school um having like, a bad grade or like getting something that wasn't a gold star and coming like feeling sick like I was going to be in so much trouble when I got home and I might especially my, my dad I was kind of scared and he he I remember him just being like did you try your hardest like did you try your best and I was like well yeah obviously and he's like that's all I'm ever gonna ask from you and like it's enough of a moment that like I'll remember that but it didn't cure me like it didn't just like oh okay my dad says this I try my best like I still is that okay well I did try my best and it still wasn't good enough so now what and you know it's you just have to those are gifts when you have those moments but you, it can't just be one moment and now you're going to be fine the rest of <laughs> and I think that that's important for people to grapple with because I think that that is one of the milestones of becoming an adult that we right now I think we have a really bad sense of what becoming an adult is because mm -hmm. it's looked on as like all the problems of being an adult with none of the benefits and I think that that's because we overlook the value of family and community and responsibility and connection and obligations to mm -hmm. your community is is like part of the benefit to me of of community. Mm -hmm. And I think we lose that sometimes because yeah. I think to that point, it's really important that 
we do realize that you can put in a hundred percent effort and not go your way. That's mm -hmm. that's a part of life. Just like sometimes you'll put in, but the benefit is that the odds are always better if you put in the effort. Mm -hmm. That it might not always go your way, but at least there's a chance it could go your way. But if you yeah. don't put in any effort, the odds that it's going to go your way are very, very low because yeah. you haven't done anything to kind of earn it or set yourself up for that opportunity. Yeah. Um, but moving forward a little bit, because we, you talked a little bit sure. about philosophy, I agree with you. I think capitalism has plenty of problems, but to me, it's the only system we found that actually works. So I'm interested in what your thoughts yeah. are on capitalism. Yeah, I mean, I'm not just like down with capitalism. Like, I feel like... Um it's it can just look the ugly side of it when people it's like max efficiency and they'll do anything for that extra dollar um and that's like at the detriment of other people's welfare um i liked economics and that's kind of where that so that stems from like that capitalism is the most efficient you know free market adam smith all of that stuff um the invisible hand um what's the invisible hand invisible hand is basically like the it's part of adam smith um the philosophy of economics being that a free market like if you just operate in the free market that the invisible hand is um like the supply and demand that um if you just leave it to be like the businesses that do things the best are going to like be the ones that will get the most money and and that sort of thing that um you don't have to do anything like like guess like that would be the antithesis of um socialism that if you if you affect or if you um implement something then you're trying to control it whereas you don't need to control it it just capitalism is magic and it'll just all work itself out when in actuality like we our system right now like what we live in isn't it's a little bit combination Mixed, of both yeah. right um what i would say is i'm just starting to read indigenomics by carol and hilton i think is her last name um she's amazing and if you ever get a chance to hear her speak it's awesome and so i've just just begun like as a new mom unfortunately having time to read in my own time is is uh, kind of hard but I struggled with, on one hand, people asking us questions. Tell us about how it is to be an Indigenous person. And, like, you're supposed to come up with this canned response. Like, it's just a one-size-fits-all. And that's not true. Um, but there's also things that I like learning that it's like, oh, um, for instance, like, wealth. So you ask, well, what does wealth mean to you? Um and that might mean like savings in the bank, but very often in, in our culture, it's about giving back and reciprocity. Um, your, if you want to call it wealth, but like, um, you're, you're doing well in life if, if you're, if you're able to provide for more people, right? So, um, I thought that was pretty, pretty big, right? Because a lot of times with capital, true capitalism, people are like, their wealth is the numbers in the bank and it's not what they're doing with that money. And that's, um, that overlap um, is kind of this reciprocity piece um, and I guess philosophy of Van City that I thought was really cool, um, being that it's a financial cooperative. Um, they didn't want that profit isn't a bad word, that money isn't bad. It's what you can do with it and the good that you can do with it. Um, I almost had the opportunity to go to um, Italy with Van City, um, Bologna in particular, and they have this um, community that I can't remember what the, the professor's name is, um, but basically they they think of the economy like there's like Ferrari and I think a Ducati um, 
production plants out there. And if one is like their competitors, but they also work collaboratively because they believe that like together, like they will rise kind of thing. And so the economy they would describe um, as whether it's like a sum or a product, meaning that like, if we're thinking of ones and zeros and like um, a zero sounds so bad is someone who's maybe not contributing to the economy um, for us, we typically think of it as like one plus one plus one plus one, and that's like the sum plus zero. Well, you're not adding anything. Um, whereas if you look at it as a product where one times one times one times zero, okay, as soon as you times a zero, everything's zero. So it's again, we're all in this together. So if there's like a, a dip in employment, um, they'll actually provide different kinds of um, tools for people to, to still contribute, whether, and it's not necessarily like financially driven, like it's more of like, making sure that everyone has a certain like style of life, right. That everyone um, is taken care of. And so, and just that the trusting that, I don't know, I think there's this um, feeling that people are just inherently lazy and that they'll just like, like if you give them a handout, handout that, that that's like, they'll just sit back and, and take that. Whereas like people want to, to be part of a community. It's more about connection and not, not that so with this it's not a handout they're just like here like this is where you'll fit into the community now and they find spots for people and i think that's important um so yeah i think there's a lot of inefficiencies unfortunately um with capitalism too uh, mostly just like the exploitation of people and our environment i get what you're saying like i get that there's yeah the efficiencies like if i'm really good at this like then that's just the thing it's like the th in theory and that's what they teach you in school the theory but in practicality what does that actually look like right um like if i'm really good at doing something and you don't like doing it or you're not really great at it then it probably would make sense for you to let me do that and then like you know and then either pay me for that or we trade services and stuff like that so like, I, I get the general idea and believe in that efficiency piece but i just think that we've as a people as a society have exploited it too much like yeah. where it's like well i can do that cheaper and thus and cheaper is better because then there's more margin but it's like at what cost right like when do you eventually say that that doesn't make sense i agree and i think that that's one thing that i was surprised by when i started the podcast because one arm of it that i was hoping to utilize more is i have this audio and video equipment and so in my mind when i was starting it i was like well if i if i do have a small business owner on what can i bring value to marketing them like mm -hmm. i have all of this great equipment we can go into your shop we can shoot a couple of different takes of your store we can tie that into the podcast we can either make that its own ad video that you can put on your facebook and mm -hmm. stuff to market yourself in a new way that you might not have the audio and video equipment or know how to use it or want to learn about it i i wouldn't need to charge for that because it wouldn't take too much of my time Mm -hmm. But this could be something that benefits their business to market them in a very mm -hmm. cost-effective way. And the response I got was nothing. Nobody was that interested. Oh. The people that I mentioned it to, and I was like, hey, this is how I could see this kind of working. Um, we would record the podcast, and then we can take parts of what you talk about. We can yeah. voice over the yeah. video footage. This is how I see it. And the response was like, oh, yeah, sure, if you want to. And it was like, oh, that's that's all on me now like you don't want to any participate like you don't want to try and yeah. work collaboratively to bring this about and i think that one of the side effects is people get so siloed carrying their own 
wait every single day trying to run their mm-hmm. business, trying to make sure that all the details that I'm sure you get as a business owner, lots of people who come in and say, I've got the next best thing for your business and you just give me a few minutes. And they get yeah. so many pitches over time that I think that they end up and it's always like a fee. It's always like a, and for the mm-hmm. small price of $400 a month, we yeah. can do this. And I think that that's caused people, um, to feel siloed and to mm-hmm. do their business and whoever they hire, they have to pay. And it becomes so independent that they start to forget mm-hmm. that there are people out there that are just willing to support because they believe in the work you're doing mm-hmm. and that that doesn't have to come with any strings attached. And mm-hmm. I think that that's what c- capitalism taken too seriously on the small micro level causes mm-hmm. people to just be like, this is my business. Nobody else cares. If I don't do it, nobody else is going to do it. So I'll just yeah. do it. And there's no point in asking this person to help or there's, there's no chance that they're going to do this for a fair, reasonable price mm-hmm. because we are always grinding so much. And with the podcast, like I know most people have no idea what goes into the background of it, which is okay with me, but I can see when you're running a whole business, you've got staff, you've got so many different arms and legs mm-hmm. that you're dealing with that it's hard for you to imagine that something could be so simple and easy and could be an exciting thing. Cause I think that sometimes small business owners lose passion for mm-hmm. what they're doing because they've been doing it for so long yeah. and gotten this jaded feeling of like customers don't know what I'm going through. Like my staff don't know what I'm going through. Nobody understands what I'm going through. And like yeah. it, it drives people to lose motivation. So can we move in a little bit into the financial yeah. literacy piece sure. and what you see from that? Because one of the biggest frustrations I have right now is feeling like indigenous communities are not getting the financial literacy that I think could really give them a leg up because I've spoken to at least my chief in council and I know that uh, our community members have received money, mm-hmm. but they don't know what to do with it. And then they mm-hmm. ended up spending it. And now mm-hmm. all of that money is now gone. And there, w- there wasn't that education piece. And I know that my community is looking into getting more yeah. education. But what has that been like for you? Well, it's interesting because, I mean, yeah, kind of what we were talking about, like, sometimes... <sighs> you're in a position and financial literacy, it makes sense. And I'm passionate about it, but it's about the system that we're in as well. So it's like when I'm going into um, a first nations community, you're not coming in preaching about this is how you need to do things because it's different. You're just more educating on this is like what I know as part of the system. And this is what can help you in that system. Like, for instance, the credit bureau, like that's a real thing. And, you know, like you can ignore it, but like, that's a thing if you want to um, go to a financial institution or you're going to a car dealership and you want a car, like those are things that um, to navigate that world. Um, that being said, so yeah, if someone were to receive a lump sum of money, there's a lot of different questions we would also ask just to see what, the, you know, help them reach their goals. But there's probably, you know, the people who typically um, facilitate financial um, literacy workshops and come from a financial institution, they're going to be talking about RSPs and tax-free savings and savings and savings and investing. When we had already talked about the reciprocity piece or the generosity piece of like, I'm wealthy and I feel my most wealthiest when I'm giving back or when, and so maybe that's buying everyone presents and we would say, well, that's not financially responsible. Um, so who are we to like put that judgment on them? But if you get to sit down and, um, again, there's like acknowledgements, like if, if they have, if there's that reciprocity piece that they've helped everyone and they know that it's coming back, you're not helping someone because you're expecting something back in return, but you know that you've taken care of this family and that if you ever needed 
help um, that they would take care of you. And there's that's something that I'm really proud that Van City is actually kind of acknowledging that a sometimes um, people who are living on reserve aren't able to build the same amount of wealth um, in terms of like um, assets. Um, cash, having equity in homes. That's something I'm working on right now with different, um, like on reserve mortgages and lending and stuff. Um, but they just didn't have that opportunity. And, you know, sort of seeing that there's other, other valuable assets, for lack of a better word, in having community connections, in having, um, that sort of thing, right? Um, so I actually, I did a financial literacy workshop with Stella Community Futures and Van City at Trelothal uh, a couple of times. And I actually, um, there's kind of two different arms that we do. One is just your basic financial literacy, um, you know, trying to demystify or make like, banking not so scary or intimidating. Um, and things that often people are like, I never learned that in school. I wish we learned that in school instead yeah. of. XYZ, like, why didn't we learn about how to, I mean, maybe this is a little old school, but like write a check or use online banking or the difference between a checking and a savings plan or a credit bureau and credit cards. And what does that actually mean? Um, you know, often I see people after the aftermath of like, I racked up all my credit cards yeah. and what, well, this isn't free money. And, you know, it just, um, you know, having that piece. But what I was in Chihuahua for was um, actually what they call each one grow one. And that was more of um, financial literacy for small businesses and entrepreneurs. Yeah. And uh, which is kind of more of my, I started, I preferred kind of going down that route because um, it was just because you work with passionate people who are, who they have an idea or they have a passion and then you help them um kind of they can still do the passion piece but like let me help you do cash flow projection because that's what you're going to need if you need financing kind of thing right um and just help them navigate that to help them reach their goals not everyone's gonna have the same goals and you can't assume that everyone does yeah. um but i think the main takeaway is just empowering people and that's like, that's the part of the education where it's not just even teaching them. It's more just letting them like, here's the information in an easy, digestible way. And then they can use it either to feel more confident to step in the bank and ask for what they need um, and that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, because I, th <laughs> I think that it's important that individuals are just at least given the information so they can get started because... Mm -hmm. I think that that's so lacking, especially mm -hmm. with our education system, is that I don't think we're given these basic tools that mm -hmm. just allow us to consider all of our options. And I mm -hmm. think that that is something I, I think a lot about because there are arguments in support of keeping the reserve system mm -hmm. and there are arguments in contrast. And I think one of the detriments is that they don't have the same level of regular access to financial institutions, to just mm -hmm. being in the community where things are yeah. taking place, where you can hear from a lawyer or hear from mm -hmm. an accountant or run into your bank teller at the store and ask a quick question. And yeah. that disconnect always concerns me because I think that it puts my community on a worse footing. And mm -hmm. it doesn't give us the same opportunities because that's why I wanted to have Tim McAlpine on is because he's this great voice for entrepreneurship. And those are the voices that I don't think reach community regularly mm -hmm. enough where it's just in your mind. And I think I just imagine this hypothetical, 
indigenous person living on reserve and having this brilliant idea and telling mm. everyone about it and then being like oh sure granny's got another brilliant idea and like he's mm. gonna go become a millionaire and like that teasing when other people don't understand what your vision is mm-hmm. just kind of comes when you're like when I was starting the podcast I was so nervous to tell anyone because I'm just imagining what other people are thinking in their head yeah. of what I'm doing and the worst possible analysis and so it's mm-hmm. hard to voice what you're doing when you're starting something like that out mm-hmm. and I think you're that's a good point about reciprocity is that that is part of indigenous communities but I think one other way that they could look at it is if you're able to build up these assets they give returns so you can be generous for a longer span of time. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Or generations, right? Yeah. Like um, a lot of like wealth planning, investing, even like life insurance stuff is, you know, that succession planning or leaving a legacy, right? Like leaving something for your family as well. So no, exactly. And I think that just, you have to build that trust with whoever you're talking about, indigenous or not, like across from you if you're if you're um, facilitating financial literacy workshops um not assume that everyone has the same goals but um no it is important and i think that's the perfect way to put it is that if that's your goal well we can even do that like you don't have to just immediately do it now we can build a plan and then help you execute that and i know there's like i think it's amazing that you're going to law school like i feel like the more indigenous people that can be in those kind of positions I mean, I like to think there's that inherent trust in general of like, oh, or hope that, okay, maybe this person will kind of get where I'm coming from more than maybe a non-Indigenous lawyer. And I know um, we often are looking for like um, accountants who understand different tax implications and um, even within Vancity um, with trying to help um, create mortgage programs, there had been barriers of finding appraisers and lawyers that helped that didn't just devalue the land right off the bat because they didn't understand um, the value or how to do it um, so yeah it's finding those like a team of people that are going to help you who understand what your goals are let's talk a little bit about what van city is to you because mm-hmm. it is unique from a bank like tde yeah. cibc and mm-hmm. then let's move into a little bit of the mortgages because i think that that is a really sure. relevant point that again differentiates indigenous communities from non-indigenous communities in the, mm-hmm. how the land is dealt with so can you yeah. tell us a little bit about van city and how it might be unique from other financial institutions right so i mean van city is one of, is bc's i believe still um, the largest credit union in bc um Credit unions are different than than banks in that they're membership owned and driven. So they're a financial cooperative, um, meaning you buy shares and you become a member. You're not a, a customer, um, which might seem somewhat insignificant, but basically it's about following the money. Where does the money go? So um, if you were a client at uh, TD, for instance, um, and you, or if you go into Vancity, it probably looks the same. You walk in, there's the tellers, some offices. It's going to look the same. The transaction's probably very much the same. It's more about what they do with their profits. So um, their profits go, you can buy TD shares, right? So on the stock market um, or in mutual funds. And so it's publicly traded. Um, so their profits go back to their shareholders, basically. Um, and same thing with financial cooperatives, except that the shareholders are typically uh, the members, so the people who are um, utilizing the services as well. And it stays in our community that way. So not saying one's better than the other, but that's just that's the difference, right? 
Um, and it's, Van City is only located in, in British Columbia because they really just focus, like, and that's how credit unions typically operate. They're usually very like geographically um, connected, I guess. I think we can say that credit unions are likely better because they're more <laughs> likely to act in the best interest of the the individual in their business than a bigger business that's more focused on shareholders, right? Uh, potentially, yeah. I mean, I, again, like the the end service, like depending on what you want, like if, if you're just depositing money or, you know, it's hard to say. Yeah. But I've only had really, growing up, uh, my first big account was at Envision, which is a credit union as well. So, um, yeah, I'm definitely team credit unions for sure. <laughs> um yeah, and then yeah, so that's basically the difference, or what the. What and what have your is. roles been like within Van City? What has that been like for you to start as a mm-hmm. bank teller? What is that experience kind of like? And then moving up in your role, what, what sure. Like? So being um, a bank teller was just like a lot of customer service, right? You're seeing a lot of people, and you're having those quick, short conversations. But you typically see the same people, so you build that relationship, um, and you you get to. Um, you know, it can be like the house, the weather kind of thing, but often you, you're seeing these people and you end up seeing them grow. There's, you see their kids grow and, um, you kind of have this intimate, um, knowledge or relationship with them in a way because you're seeing them, um, deposit money and it's, you see people, um, like deposit money from like a job. So you kind of know like their job history, their education history, maybe some of their struggles. Um, and then, to, I mean, to a degree, you people come in, um, maybe they're working through an estate, so someone's passed away, or they're getting married. So you kind of, you go to a, a credit union or financial, I say bank, but financial institution, um, at kind of different, um, really pivotal moments of your life, hypothetically. So you kind of end up getting to know people on that level. And then becoming an account manager, um, it slowed things down a little bit. I wasn't seeing as many people in a day, but I was having longer conversations with those people. So then again, you're getting going down another level and people are coming in um, looking for advice. And um, whereas like the be on the front line as a teller, more transactional, right? They're telling you, just put this this check in. And, and then, I mean, you still want to give them some advice. Hey, do you have plans for this? Do you want to maybe talk to a, um, a financial advisor or talk to an account manager about this? So it's a team effort really to help uh, help people navigate um, those times of their lives. Um, so then as account manager, um, you kind of know a lot about or a little about a lot. <laughs> I'm not licensed, so I can't. I wouldn't really discuss mutual funds. I could talk that they exist, and that maybe that's something that you'd want to talk to a specialist about. Um, but I was doing loans, lines of credits, um, mortgages, and like so. That's the lending piece, and then the basic RSP tax-free savings and term deposits, and just helping educate people on the differences. Um, I really ended up liking. I mean, we'd have to do like potentially consolidation loans. I, I kind of like doing them because it was a great opportunity to educate people and f- help like put them on their path, like kind of redirect their path and um, again, make more um, kind of an efficient plan for them to reach their goals moving forward by like reducing their debt ultimately or reducing their their debt load and um, helping their cash flow and stuff like that. So can you tell us a little bit more about debt consolidation? Because I think that we have a lot of young listeners who may be working themselves towards a place where they need to consider consolidating their Mm -hmm. debt, but haven't even considered it as like, what does that even mean? Yeah, for sure. So um, I think it's just, yeah, being aware of what kind of tools you're using. So like credit card, 
credit cards aren't bad, it's how you use them. Uh, I like to get the points, I like to use the, the ease of using a credit card, and then I just have one bill to pay at the end of the month. Um, I highly recommend paying your credit card off in full each month, it's usually not a very good interest rate. Uh, I mean, that's all relative, but uh, credit cards are usually 19%. Um, so you don't, you, I mean, if you can avoid paying interest, that would be great. And just finding someone that you trust that you can ask questions. And like, for me, my space is like, there's no dumb questions. Ask me anything. It's better to know than to, yeah, that shame of like, oh, I'm embarrassed. I don't know. Um, I had someone whose husband got a truck loan and thought he got a really good deal. And it was like almost 20%. Like he almost bought a new truck on like, cause he didn't have good credit. And so or didn't have good credit. And so that they justified then increasing his interest rate. And that's true. So it's like, why, why does my credit matter? Well, if you want lending, like that's a potential reason you might be deemed as riskier um, because they don't know you. So like they are kind of, I mean, I don't want to say they're judging, but they use the credit bureau as a tool to navigate what kind of products they can offer you and at what interest rate. Um, whether that's fair or not, that's, that's, that's how it happens. And so I just want people to have that knowledge so that they can navigate and plan for the best. I would say, yeah, establish a relationship with someone at your financial institution. Um, they're, it's free. You sit down and you can have someone's like an hour of their undivided attention and get help navigating your finances. So you're doing things smarter. Um, I had someone who, so yeah, you owe, you're carrying a little bit of a balance on your credit card and, um, you see on your bill, minimum payment, $50. Okay, well, that's not too bad. Um, sometimes it's even lower. It's like $20. And I had someone who, it, maybe it's like this perfectionism where they're just like, they're like, oh, well, I didn't want to just pay $20, but I knew in like next month I'd be able to pay like 100 So I they just skipped paying the 20 now. And they're like, oh, I'll pay 100 next month. And it was like, no, that's not how credit cards work. You like, that's your minimum payment. Like you have to make that payment or else you skipped a payment basically. And like, you know, in their head, well, I'm going to pay them 100 next month. That's better than paying them 20 bucks now or and 20 bucks next month, right? Like, that's only $40, Nina, do the math. And it's like, okay, I get in theory what you're saying, but that's not how it works. And now you're you're actually like, like wrecking your credit bureau because it's showing as a late payment. Um, and so that's just, again, no judgment, kind of we can joke about it. Um, but moving forward, like now you know, and you're going to pay the $20 on time because you want to preserve your, your credit bureau. Um, and then it's like when you're buying stuff and you don't have the money to pay it off, for instance, um, what's the best route to go? Like maybe you have, um, your car breaks down and you have your, you need the car to get to work. So you're hit with a large bill, uh, you put it on your credit card, but should it stay there? Does that make the most sense? Or maybe you should get a loan. What's the difference and why would I get one product over the other? Right. Um, so come in, talk, find out if you don't know those answers um, or what like a line of credit is and that sort of thing. So consolidation loans, why I liked it was say, you're just, you're out living life. You got a couple of credit cards, because especially when you turn 19, all of a sudden it seems like they, they know and they're coming in the wood, woodwork and they're offering you all these great 0% like four, oh, read the fine print, right? Um, so maybe you have a couple of credit cards and that you're, you're learning that you're paying the minimum payment, but you're not getting ahead with a minimum payment. You're not paying it down. It's kind of the never, never plan. Maybe you have a car loan too, or 
Another thing that attracts people are those furniture loans, yeah. like, yeah. Or, Easy home. Exactly, yeah. And yeah, no payments until, and then all of a sudden you're hit with this payment. And anyway, so then you're just feeling like that's cash flow is when all of your, like your pay paycheck comes in and then, oh, the credit card's taking this and that loan's taking that. And it's just like, what do I have left? And I'm also supposed to save? How does this work, right? And you're not getting ahead and it just, it feels like this weight on you. And so for people who get to that point where they're like, like, help, like I don't know where my money is going or I don't have enough to, to feel like I'm living comfortably or I don't have enough to, for my goals of going to school or for my goals to purchase a new car, um, come in, figure it out. So what a consolidation loan technically does would be paying out your debts um, and consolidating it to one payment because it's like death by a thousand cuts sometimes where you have paid like, and if they're different interest rates right so if you can pay off debt that has 19 percent with a loan that's only seven percent financially that makes sense right that's that's basic math it doesn't matter i failed calculus i know that that math works um and so the idea is kind of twofold you're paying down potentially higher interest rate debt at a lower interest rate and you're also typically freeing up a little bit of cash flow so that they can have some breathing room, or maybe we're using a little bit of that freed capital or um, cash to pay down the loan faster. So again, a credit card is revolving, and that's why we call it like the never never plan. If you just keep on putting money towards, you don't have that end in sight. And sometimes it even says, legally they actually had to um, add this to the statement, where it will tell you if you pay the minimum payment, you will pay this down in 21 years kind of thing, right? So yeah, look at that if you want to be depressed. <laughs> um, so with a loan, it's a X amount, like this is the interest rate and it's going to be paid off. If you keep on making this X amount of payments, it'll be paid off in three years. It'll be paid off in four years. So there's that light at the end of the tunnel. This is a plan. So long as you, you know, don't kind of fall back into potentially some of those pitfalls, like this is your plan and this is like how you're going to get out of it kind of thing, right? So this is a really important question I want to ask because I know that for a certain subsection of the population, we treat people as if, and maybe there's a better way to phrase this. Who are some of the people who need these consolidation loans? Because I think we have a bad habit of thinking one subsection of the population are the ones with all the money problems. Mm. And the people on Promontory or the people in, on Chilliwack Mountain don't have those problems because yeah. they're financial experts because they've got this big, beautiful car. Yeah. And I think that that's an error we often make is that we treat the person with the crazy Jaguar as yeah. if they've got all of their finances figured out and the person driving the old Nissan Altima 2002 yeah. is the crazy person who's got all the problems. So can you tell us just broadly? It's just that it's broad. Like they're, I mean, I've been out of, out of the game for a few years. Right. So, but uh, you're, you're totally right there. It's, it's all ages. It's, it really does cross a lot of different demographics. Um, yeah. Having a fancy car or boat, I mean, from a, from my standpoint, because of the job that I've had, um, it's funny because, yeah, you're right. Most people would be like, oh, they've got it all figured out. They must be very wealthy. And from my point of view, I'm always like, oof, I wonder, like, are those paid off? Or are they paying loans? And, like, I've seen where, you know, maybe it's an illness or you just lose a job and all of a sudden that life is, like, you can't afford it anymore. Um, so, yeah, whereas the person, like, I drive a 2008 Mazda that is like pretty rickety right now. Um, so not saying that my life was 
great and I'm super wealthy because I drive a crappy car. That's not necessarily the case either. But definitely there are people who live more, um, I guess, like moderately or like frugally. frugally and financially. Like, yeah, you might think, oh, they they don't know about finance. It's like, oh, they do. And like they, you know, like their lifestyle is different. Right. Um, so, no, you can't judge a book by its cover. Um by any means and but i do think that unfortunately people who um there's like this cycle of poverty as well where maybe they had less means to educate themselves about finance um i also it's like that kind of like if you have enough there's um what chargeback fees at banks so you didn't have enough money um and something bounced and then the bank charges you a fee and it just feels like adding insult to injury like i didn't have money and now you're charging me more money because I didn't have money. Like it's, it's, yeah. And I get it. And I understand why they do it to a degree, but often, um, like it's not funny. Like the, the, often there's those kinds of things where, yeah, the, the people who need it, need help the most are actually getting penalized. Can more. we talk about a little bit about money mart and those types of businesses? Because <sighs> yeah. those are heartbreaking. I think that they shouldn't even exist. I think that they are purely predatory and i think something so vulturous should mm -hmm. not exist in our communities because they do go after the most vulnerable they're not going after the people on promontory or the people yeah. on in chilliwack mountain they're looking for the people who are already trying to survive with small amounts of money each month yeah i'm not sure i think fancy still does it but they actually um created a product that was to try to help I mean, I guess one way to say it is steal business from them, but to basically offer an alternative to people who are going to money marts and stuff like that. Um, it was called a fair and fast loan because that those were kind of the barriers that people, um, when you go to get an official loan, yeah, we're going to pull your credit. It's going to take time. You need income verification. And they're like, yeah, no, I need this money now because I have to pay rent or I have to buy groceries. And, um, you know, those were limitations that were on us. So I just love yeah, being part of an organization that listens and looks and is like, okay, well, this is how we can fill the need. Are the interest rates higher than a regular loan? Yep, it is. But it's not the predatory rates that, like you're saying. Because they can be like 200, 300, 400 percent, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. For and, like a few weeks. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and then you're not getting ahead; you're getting behind. And and again, it's it's quick and easy. So if you're already feeling maybe embarrassed, it's like okay, well at least I just go in and out, and like I don't have to, you know, do anything. Whereas oh, if I don't want to see Nina, I have to sit down and talk to her and, and admit I'm, and, all of yeah, these things and show them all these things. But often push comes to shove at the very end, and they're like, they're, they can't get ahead, and then they do come. They finally do have to come, and it's like, oh, I wish you came to me from the beginning because it would have been easier. But but that's fine, and and um, you know, come at least at some point, right? Um, but yeah, exactly. Like there's there's so many different things that lead up to what can put someone in that position, right? And I can go back to their their families. Um, access to wealth um you know keep family helping them um bailing them out kind of thing um access to again that's kind of we can segue into the mortgage thing is because that's a lot of people are able to access equity from from their home um to help that's an easy consolidation loan if you can use a huge asset to to offset it before we get there i want to no ask worries. about um small like car purchases or car mm -hmm. leases yeah. and what your thoughts are on those because i think i've taken a little bit of flack for saying I don't support them almost ever because mm -hmm. I think that they put um, people who might have a $20 an hour job mm -hmm. and then they're like, oh, like I can get this car for $300 a month or yeah. $250 a month. But now you have 
this contract with this mm-hmm. institution, and now you have this long-term commitment. So yeah. it makes it more difficult if you want to switch jobs, if you want to focus more on university, if yeah. you want to start your new, you're an entrepreneur and you want to start a new thing. Like I can just see so many potential negatives down almost any path that you want to go down yeah. with a big car loan that to me I can almost never see unless you have a big stockpile of cash and you could pay it out at any time and you're just choosing not to and it's a low interest rate yeah. that's like the only time I can see it but I see almost all of my friends with cars that have loans on them and jobs that really don't support that type of financial decision yeah. yet their parents support them they sign the contract with them and it just feels like there's multiple generations that don't understand mm-hmm. the long-term risks because the argument that I've heard against me is what's well, a safe vehicle I don't have to stress about getting stuck on the side of the road yeah. and all I think is well how much is BCAA a year it's like what a hundred bucks yeah. to guarantee that somebody's going to be there on the side of the road with you to help you out exactly um, and I mean in my role at the financial institution I like you can't impose your beliefs on on someone but there are definitely people who i would like have considered consider friends where i'm having a pretty real candid conversation where i'm like why like what are you and it's like this entitlement potentially or um i need this reward i deserve this that kind of thing um but it's also yeah about seeing like the long term so there's definitely times where people well i was just like why is that your goal? And it, it might be an ego thing. It might be a lifestyle thing. And again, you're trying not to impose any judgment on that. But from a financial standpoint, it's like, does that actually make sense? Um, and I think a good example would be, I would see a lot of young, typically guys um, who would, were going to Alberta working on the oil rigs. And as soon as they came back, it was like, okay, like you could just almost have like the checklist, right? Like they got the big truck and all their toys and, and then, yeah, oh no, you're like you, something's changed in your life. And now all of a sudden, you know, this is not as, as comfortable making those payments and stuff like that. And you have to reevaluate, right? So sometimes you can, you can give people your advice and um, show them like that alternative way of thinking of things, but sometimes they're not going to, it's not going to really sink in until they have to experience yeah. like making a choice, right? Of, hmm, I can't afford this anymore, you know? And that's a, that's a touchy subject, telling someone like what to do with their money or maybe not their money, but I mean, they're not spending their money on buying the vehicle because they're getting a loan, but they're yeah. using their money to pay the loan down, right? Yeah. Um, there's also the whole asset thing of like, when you buy a brand new vehicle, like as soon as it leaves the lot, it like the value of it, it goes down or it, go, it decreases typically, right? Yeah. Um, so again, it's about education. So I definitely would have those conversations with people in a non-judgmental way of just being like, this is like, these are some of the things. And cause there are pros and cons to leasing as well. Like, especially if you're an entrepreneur, people lease vehicles, write-offs, that sort of thing, or if you're using it for marketing. And again, I don't, uh, pretend to be an expert in all those things, but, um, yeah, there's, it's, I think you use the word like kind of being in control of your, your finances and yeah. And being, you'll be more, I guess, able to adapt or be agile in a world that is ever changing. So like, yeah, like you're, you might have that job now, but you might not have it down the road or something might change or you have a baby. Like there's, there's different priorities change. Um, but yeah, or if you lose your job, now that vehicles become more of a burden or that payment has become more of a burden, right? Especially if there's like a a financial crash or something like that. So can you quickly just describe how 
an individual might experience that because I think the big pitfall for a lot of people is they treat the 2008 crash or recessions in general as if that doesn't apply to them mm -hmm. because they have a normal job. They're not a part of the stock market. They're not a part of these big investment organizations. Yeah. So how does that impact me, the regular everyday individual? And I think that we do a terrible job of educating people on what a recession looks like. Mm -hmm. What did the 2008 recession mean? Um, who was responsible for that? Like, I feel like we mm -hmm. don't do a great job of delivering that information to the common yeah. individual who's just going about their day. I always think that the best way to educate is through stories, right? And uh, luckily, like, I feel like I'm old enough now that I actually have stories of my own that are cautionary tales, as I like to call them. Um, or if you don't, like, use someone else's as well, like, with permission or, you know, don't use their name kind of thing. But so I actually bought an apartment. I was still living at home with my parents and I bought an apartment. I think I was 22. I had just started working at Ben City and had some money saved up and I wanted to be a landlord. I thought that would be a good idea. And I bought in 2006, end of 2007 maybe. And um, interest rates were like almost 6%. And so that was again i know like i didn't know what was good or bad um, my parents back in the day like had double digit mortgage rates before right so I'm like this is great no um and so yeah the market basically crashed in 2008 and i was like what i thought in, like i oh, thought real estate you can't lose it always just goes up right like very naive um i ended up holding on to that like investment it was more of a lesson than an investment um it was, yeah, learning kind of like while I was going to school, I was learning that piece. But in real life, I was learning lots of things through being a landlord um, and real estate owner, I guess. Um, and, you know, different like words of wisdom, like you only lose like when you sell, like in mutual funds, even or your stocks, like when, when it's down, you're like, oh, I want to sell. Like I've stopped this like ride. I want off. But if you sell, like that's when, you, when you're actually realizing the loss. Right. So if you can hold on to it and ride the proverbial waves um, over time. And again, there's different reasons why people invest. But uh, so I tell people that like, no, interest rates change. And like just because like what you know to be true, especially if you're younger, that's like no hit on younger people. It's just like you've had less experience, hypothetically, of, of time to experience those like different interest rates. Um, you've only if you're only looking at the short snippet of time of like what the stock market was doing. Um, yeah. So just knowing that it has impacted people and it has, maybe doesn't impact people all the same way, though, either. Right. So I'd use that as a cautionary tale that, you know, some people buy and then all of a sudden, like, yeah, the market jumped up and they have all this equity and they think they're the smartest person in the world because they did this. And it's like, okay, but it's not always like that. Like it, and I think um, it's interesting because my parents are kind of different. My dad was very like planning for the future and being like being somewhat frugal, um, not doom and gloom, but just kind of like you know, level-headed, I guess. Whereas my mom's very generous and maybe kind of a little bit like if um, it wasn't for him, maybe it would be a little bit less as planned um, and like, you know, more just like, if you got money, you like spend it and like share it with your friends and just, you know, keep on living. But like, whereas my dad's like plan for a rainy day and, you know, that sort of thing. And so I try to take both of those things because you can't just 
Like there's no point of just being so frugal that you're not experiencing any joy um, in life. But it's, I think it's a balance. It's finding the balance that works for you. Um, and listening to people of different ages, of different backgrounds, because they're all going to have different um, experiences and their perceptions might be different, right? Yeah. yeah. One thing I'm really worried about right now is hyperinflation, because we're getting a lot of hints that that's either coming or that we're, we're, we might be a little bit more exposed than other countries. Mm-hmm. And my concern is that we're talking about it perhaps in ivory towers in financial institutions Mm -hmm. but the people that this really impacts is first nations communities people already in poverty who are already Mm -hmm. on a fixed income those are the people who impact if hyperinflation occurs those are the people who are going to be impacted the worst and i don't know if you've heard but i always hear stories of the average canadian is like they couldn't get together $200 in like two weeks if mm-hmm. they needed to pay off an extra bill or something like that. Yeah. And so to me, we're getting a lot of indications that we might have over the next 10 years, some mm-hmm. real financial hardships. And yeah. I don't think that that's A, being talked about enough, but B, being shared with the people who need to be preparing the most for something like that to occur. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's, I mean, that's very real. Yeah, to to assume that everyone experiences the same is definitely not not true at all. Can you tell us about leasehold land and how Van City is working with them? Because I know I can share a little bit of information on how Alpine is involved in that work. So, yeah. Um, So basically, a lot of the times um, when you live on reserve, there is like all the homes are like owned by the band and people acquire homes different ways um i mean growing up in chilliwack i know it'd be like you know they would you drive through the reserve and there's like oh like they don't take care of their properties or they i don't know and it's just like it's different it's different than um when you have a mortgage and you're able to be like oh my roof's leaking i need to like like most people i mean don't just have like say 10 grand to like buy a new roof but they're able to access it because they own the home and they have access to the equity and it's pretty cut and dry to do that when you go into a bank it's like here's my deed okay you don't actually do that but you pull like the land um like the title and stuff like that right um and they know like lenders know how to do that when you live in the reserve and you don't like you know everyone knows that's your home but like you go to the bank they're like well can you prove that it's your home like do you have like you know the title and and that sort of thing and it's like well no and you know how does that work um so kind of what was happening like my background would be there's lots of development like Chilliwack's surrounded by well ALR at this point and a lot of um reserve like leased land um everything else is being developed and scooped up and so it's a huge opportunity. Um, and so we were seeing community members who were getting CPs. So that's like certificate of possession, um, on their land. And this is all, sorry, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, um, because a lot of, um, communities are getting land code. So they're taking back control of their, their communities and their land and they're creating and their own the rules. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, thank you for clarifying. Um, so land code is enabling them to make more of these rules and helping, helping their community members. Um, so we were seeing, yes, yeah, a community member um, had this plot of land and then they were developing. And because, um, again, there's a huge need for it, right? Um, supply and demand. And so they would develop and then they were selling these these townhomes or, and that sort of thing. And they were making themselves and their family some money. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. 
this would become leased land, right? It's still on reserve, but um, most of these homes are being sold to non-Indigenous people who, who need a house. They're coming out from the city, they're moving to Chilliwack. So similar to like cultists, like there's leased land, but that's like crown land or whatever. Um, so I was like, that's, that's great. Um, not all FIs can lend on lease land. They have to have approved the head lease. So for instance, FI, financial, financial institutions. Yes, sorry, jargon. Um, so for instance, like Van City, there's a lot of land up at Cultus that we're not, we don't mortgage off. It doesn't mean that the pro, like there's anything wrong with the property. We just haven't gone through the steps to have our legal department approve the head lease. Like a lot of the Cultus, like it's like 100 year lease, that sort of thing, right? Suwali, so, right? No, not not even indigenous lands. Okay. So like um just um there's like yeah, crown lands like around the lake itself that I mean it is Sawali land, but you know, it's yeah, it, but it's not designated reserve lands for legal purposes. So owned by non-indigenous people. Um so yeah, the crown would be like the head lease basically, like it's or I'm not sure exactly what the head lease is, but this isn't like non-indigenous. Um but I'm just using it as an example. So we don't mortgage there, but maybe TD does, or maybe Envision does. Um, so sometimes you have to shop around that way when you're you're looking for a mortgage. I've had people at the 11th hour say, I was moving from Surrey to Chilliwack, and um, then all of a sudden they said that they, that wasn't an approved development. Um, and it was, it just happened to be what we, we were calling local tea lease land. So this is when um, First Nations person who had the CP um, owned the land and then basically built a, um, like a subdivision kind of thing. And they were selling each unit. Um, so yeah, so they were like, ah, help us. And so the Vance is like, oh, okay, yeah, that, that is an approved um, development. So we can mortgage on that. And that's great. What I was seeing, and like obviously other people were seeing was that, okay, so why are we just quickly able to um, provide a mortgage to a non-Indigenous person on technically Indigenous land but when an indigenous person wants to get a mortgage, it's all like, okay, how do we do this? This is confusing. And there's barriers and barriers and barriers, right? And I mean, there was, there was the desire to do it, but there was just barriers and we, we couldn't figure out why there were barriers. Like this is a, basically the same land. And if you break it down, it's basically you're borrowing, you're lending to someone who's not indigenous or you're lending to someone who is indigenous. And that obviously looks like a glaring, like that's an issue. Um, so what they were, they found was that it's about seizing assets, potentially like recourse, um, about mitigating risk. And so this is why, um, we actually sat down, we went to Stalo, they have like a lands title office, um, a couple other financial institutions were there and it was just like a good, again, like collaborative approach to like the problem solving. And I felt like I got to be in the middle of it because I could, I know some of the pain points that as like an indigenous person when they're like. Like they want to immediately be like, oh, we can't seize assets. Okay, like that's the first thing you're thinking about when you look at me when I come into the bank is, oh, we can't like, like there's PPSA, um, personal property security agreement. And that's like what something you would put on, a lender would put on a vehicle, for instance, like a piece of property, um, kind of like a mortgage, but for um, a vehicle. And the, in the Indian Act, which again, a lot of First Nations people would rather not be part of, um, it would say like, you can't go and seize that asset on reserve lands. So then as a 
financial institution were like, well, that's risky then because we can't, we have no recourse. And it's nothing personal. They're just like, that's kind of your job is mitigating risk, making sure the deal makes sense. You're giving away hundreds of thousands of dollars. You want to make sure that you have a strong... So, I mean, I can see the standpoint, but then there's a way to communicate that without being offensive, right? right? And being like, this is what we're thinking about. Um, then there was um, just the legality of it, of like, um, of, of like, well, it's not in our typical conventional lands title office in Victoria or whatever, right? It's held by a small lands department from the band, basically, or in the community. And so we're kind of wrapping their head around that and that, that this is still legitimate just because it's a little bit different doesn't mean it's less real. Um, and then I think the biggest one was the valuation of the land. As soon as they were like, well, no, you can't sell it. So say it was you, Aaron, you had the CP and you wanted to build a house um so and like to do that but like say you want to sell it afterwards like well you can't just sell it to anyone right and like just not knowing what the rules were again it's just like it's not easy they have to figure out um how to navigate that um who would be able to like live in that house afterwards if you would decide to move or want to sell so again it's like that free market like if you were buying a house on promontory you can sell that house on the free market and they know that a comparable house down the road sold for x amount and that's how they value the property with this it's a unique property and they weren't sure how to value it so just to save to like kind of like pad it to make sure that it was less risky as per, like they would say they would just make it lower value right like it's like if you're budgeting for yourself um you want to overestimate your expenses and underestimate your income so that if like because if you're you know then you're happy there's a happy accident at the end right so kind of that same but there's a point so i'm like i can see how they're trying to mitigate risk and how they're trying to offset some of like they're not knowing but I also, on the other hand, see how that is not equal, not fair, and borderline offensive. Um, so it was kind of navigating that. The other benefit, not just because it's the right thing to do and it makes sense, is that a lot of the capital that is being used to like fix up these homes or to build them are coming from the band. And that money could be used for like other like programs, infrastructure, like all this other stuff. Um, so that's why I was pretty passionate about um, helping them make that more accessible, right? So that they can use those funds for, for other things, right? Um, and giving people um, that power of like ownership, right? And control of their own, their own property. And, and also it meant that people were able to move back to their communities. So very often, um, so what it was, was basically, we called it like an A-to-A lease or um, they called it a self-lease. So basically you own the CP, like the certificate of possession, and then you're leasing the land to yourself. That's basically as simple as it was. And so all we have to do is approve the head lease and then we would approve the mortgage like we would anyone else, just with the income verification, credits, all still um, applicable. And for the most part, it was um, progressive mortgages, like building mortgages. So people would get the land and maybe the land was gifted. So that's already like awesome. They might have a grant to help offset some of the costs. Um, and then from there, like, it's still not everyone can afford to do a build, a build a home. Like, it's quite expensive. So often the people who were applying for this maybe lived off reserve and owned their own home elsewhere. So they were pulling out equity already there. Um, but again, there's, there's opportunity there to people, for people who already are in a house. So they don't have to build, but they want to access that, that equity to fix it up, maybe build an addition 
go on vacation, like whatever, like it's, it's theirs to, to use how they want kind yeah. of thing. I think that that's so important because through my role as a court worker, I got to see um, one of the, like, there's, there's this complexity of the word systemic racism um, because people try and point to, I think the Indian Act is a really good example of systemic racism because it does judge a whole group of people based on the, their ethnicity mm-hmm. and not on anything else. Um, but another way to look at it within the court system, because I, when that article came out about me, mm-hmm. there were a few people I saw in different threads being like, they're treated just the same as everybody else. And I think that it's like, I can offer tangible examples of how it's not. And one of them yeah. is that if you're a Caucasian person and your parents own their home, they use part of the ownership of their home as a surety to say, we're so confident that we're going to make sure that mm-hmm. Timmy attends his treatment, goes to therapy, gets his counseling done, that mm-hmm. we are willing to put up part of our home as a surety to say, we are going to make sure that he does that and we're going to take that responsibility. Yeah. The difference for Indigenous people is for the longest time, they don't own their property and they don't have mm-hmm. assets that they can say I'm a surety and uh, tied in with that is maybe their parents have court issues. Maybe their grandparents have court issues. So there's not that supportive person to take on that responsibility, which is kind mm-hmm. of how the native court worker role came about because it was recognizing that there's this huge difference in how Caucasian people get treated because of ownership of property in comparison to indigenous people who don't own their property. Mm-hmm. And so making this accessible, you being involved in this, like to most people listening right now, they might be like, oh, that's kind of interesting, but I don't know much about like, <laughs> Boring yeah, and, but people get that reaction but it's important to understand the ramifications long term mm-hmm. over the next 25 years of you helping build this relationship with van city and leasehold property because mm-hmm. it has far-reaching effects in our courts in our community in our ability to develop the community that mm-hmm. go far beyond just oh now i own this little bit of property or i have a lease on my property now mm-hmm. it actually has really important implications for our ability to change the overrepresentation of indigenous people in the court system mm-hmm. or in the prison system for addressing poverty for addressing so many other issues that I don't think get talked about enough in tying in with this because mm-hmm. I'm sure Van City wasn't thinking about any of these other ramifications that will come from supporting this initiative they mm-hmm. were just viewing um a smaller aspect of the issues they see within their organization that they wanted to address but it has broader really important implications and when i saw your involvement with that and talking to chanel it was like that's another thing that again role models aren't just what you can see on the surface level it's this Mm -hmm. in-depth understanding of like the impact of what you did will make on all communities and if van city can apply that across bc and then if other credit unions across canada can take Mm -hmm. that similar lead it's going to have a huge hopefully impact on so many other areas that people don't expect yeah and so i i want to appreciate you for that and can you tell us about being at van city and starting luna float and what that whole process was like to bring that idea about and Mm -hmm. what that process was like yeah so and then we talked about this a little bit before um not today but um it kind of goes into a little bit like a couple years before i actually left oops sorry i'm playing my mic um before i left van city and that was like your song the song and um it all makes sense i swear um but having some stress induced illnesses um like i like working i like working at city at van city i currently work there um i left on really good terms i basically i say that um by the end of like my account manager i was what they call a bbam a branch business account manager and so i was working with entrepreneurs and small businesses um 
I was dating my my now husband who um, is very entrepreneurial. And it's, it's just so nice to be around these passionate people. And it was inspiring. And I was like, I have this business degree and I, I teach business plan writing and I'm telling people a lot of things, but what do I actually know? Like maybe I should put my money where my mouth is. And um, there was that desire to for the autonomy and um, just to see like, why the heck not? Like life is short, like let's, let's try it. Um, and I wanted to go out and um, do something and own my own business and that sort of thing. And so I left Band City on good terms and did that. What I wanted to backpedal with was like, I didn't actually know Luna Float. It wasn't, which I, I just, I wanted to own a business. I wanted to um, try to create something, but I wasn't sure what. And then a good friend of mine was like, well, what about float therapy? Like you're very passionate about that. Maybe tie that in. And I was like, oh my gosh, you're so smart. Like that's a, that's a great idea. And um, while I liked Van City, there was also I mean, customer service. Like I, I was saying, you um, you see people in different parts of their life, and for me, I think maybe I didn't like I was taking a lot of that on. A lot of people's like stress and emotions, and if they were stressed out about money, like, I was stressed for them, and I was just so a little part of that um, was being taken on. Um, I had stuff going on in my personal life. And that wasn't really good, like that sort of thing. And um, I didn't really have the tools to process stress. Like you just kind of get over it. You just push through. Um, and I didn't, I thought stress was just like, oh, you're stressed out because you're studying for a test. Like I didn't understand the biological and psychological elements of that, that like it increases your cortisol. And, and you know, I'm young, but we still didn't really talk about mental health back back in school and, and, you know, in, in my family really like that. And so I didn't know the signs of burnout, um, and, and that sort of thing until it manifested physically. So I was playing roller derby. I also started a roller derby league back, back in the day and it was awesome. And I've always been pretty athletic. I like playing soccer and, and different sports and roller derby. I wasn't good at it first cause I didn't really know how to skate, but I learned and it became you know, one of my, my passions, I had to stop just because it was too much um, involvement. Like it was also a not-for-profit association and I was on the board of that. Um, and let's, let's face it, it was lots of bumps and bruises. I had some injuries. I was like, okay, I want my body to work still. So I had to say goodbye to that. But um, that was like kind of a way to de-stress, I thought, right? Like, you know, your, your adrenaline's pumping, you're kind of like, you're, you're in the zone, so you're forgetting everything. Um, but it wasn't, you know, calming, it wasn't resting, it wasn't restorative. Um, I also did kickboxing. So again, you can see the theme here, I was like, punching my stress away. And, um, and it didn't, like, it helped avoid some of my problems, but it didn't um, really help me address them. Um, so, I am trying to think of it does seem so like a distant memory now which is kind of nice but I was young like mid-20s and um, I just felt sick and like I didn't know what and I had been prone to like pneumonia bronchitis back when I was younger and I remember coming in and I was having heart like palpitations and um, I had those issues as a kid before but it was never really diagnosed like I was on those ECGs and um, and I knew I, I was like, I must have pneumonia too. Like, I just feel like crap. And I went to my doctor. It's not my doctor anymore because he basically he always had his hand like over the pad of like prescription paper. And back then he was like, okay, we can 
talk about either your lungs or your heart, but we can't do both. Like you can't bring two problems at me at the same time, right? And I'm like, I don't know, like maybe they're related. So I was like, okay, let's just deal with my pneumonia. We'll deal with all the other stuff later. So he's like, yeah, yeah, here's your prescription for your, your antibiotics and stuff, which obviously I needed. And I started feeling better. And then I finally had enough energy to go back. And I was like, okay, what about this heart thing? Like I'm a healthy young woman, I'm playing sports and like, I can be playing roller derby, which is quite, um, you need a lot of energy and like strength. But then all of a sudden I'll just be like gas bringing up the laundry up the stairs and like sweating almost and just like, and um, he did some tests and he basically, um, my heart was racing too high and pounding out of my chest. And I was like, yeah, it doesn't feel very good and makes me feel like really nervous. And so he's like, well, we'll put you on medication to lower your, your heart rate. I was like, that seems kind of weird. And I'm like, but also it pauses and then goes low. And he's like, all right, we'll put a pacemaker in you. And I was like, really? That, well, uh, I'm like, I don't know how I feel about that. That's a very invasive uh, procedure. And you need to upgrade that, like, equipment. Like, and I think every 10 years or something. Things, right? Yeah, like and I was to... like 24, 25. And I was like, I think I'm going to have to think about that. Right? So I actually went to another doctor. And um, she, I can't remember what came first. Because I ended up having rubella, pneumonia. So rubella is German measles. I had shingles, which like normally is in like older people. Um, and yeah, that actually, the shingles incident, I have to say, like I was at Ben City working and all of a sudden half of my body started getting numb. And I had like this like itch on my back in between my shoulder blades and I didn't know what it was. And then all of a sudden like half my, it's like coming up and I'm like trying to like finish my work and like all of a sudden it gets to my face and I'm like, I think I better go to the emergency. I actually went to my chiropractor and he's like, I'm not touching you. He's like, I think it, like you could be having not a stroke, but it was something like serious. So I went to the doctor, went to emergency and they hooked me up right away. And of course they're like, oh, you have an irregular heartbeat. I'm like, yeah, I know it's allegedly benign, but like, um, what's wrong? They, they even really knew they, they basically sent me, they said I wasn't having a stroke, which was good. Um, so then I went back to my doctor and she, again, she's, she was amazing. She's like, do you have a rash? I'm like, I don't think so. I'm like, oh, I have like this itch on my back. Sure enough, that was shingles. And shingles affects your nervous system. And that's why like our nerve networks are very, um, like they mirrored image, right? So that's why it was like a perfect line down my body. And it was just affecting the side. So I had shingles. I went on medication for that. But um, she basically diagnosed me with um, a general anxiety disorder, pepper and some CPTSD and stuff like that. I had been going through counseling, which I am a huge supporter of. I think people should, should definitely seek counseling. Um, and, but finally it was just like, it just manifested physically. Like my brain had been telling me to slow down and that I needed to do these things, but I didn't stop and listen until it physically was tangible. Like I could show someone, oh, see, I am, this is like how I have been feeling inside like mentally but like it took for it to like manifest into physical symptoms that I could almost like prove to people what was that like because Rebecca had basically the same thing with her stomach problems and her back problems mm -hmm. was trying to cope and people kind of just expect you to turn that off at a certain mm -hmm. point in time like you're having dinner and nobody wants to be hearing about your health problems when you're in the middle of dinner mm -hmm. and yet you're in agonizing discomfort or feeling something yeah. and it seems like we as a society seem to struggle with giving that space to people to be like hey it's just dinner 
let's have what's going on let's hear what's going on yeah like that's way more important than talking Mm -hmm. about what my week was last week so what was that like to have this constant feeling of not being comfortable in your body and feeling like your body and you were not on the same page and not being able to share that with people in an easy way yeah I mean it's it's yeah like it was more like getting poked and prodded with like all of these different tests um and yeah people just kind of looking at you like well you're young like it's probably not that bad and like really the term gaslight gets thrown around a lot but it was definitely like something that kind of happened but I feel like more myself like I'm like I gaslit myself because you just question yourself like is it really as bad as I think it is like because you kind of like see how other people react to it and you're like well they don't seem like it's a big deal so maybe I'm overreacting um and yeah and I mean still like once it was physical it wasn't a huge wake-up call because then it was like okay well now we'll just fix the physical so now that it's manifested physically we fix the physical and then I'll be fixed right um but yeah and so I actually ended up taking about I think a month maybe not even a month off of work first like stress related um and that was like you know you hear people who are like oh don't let them put you on that medication because that's gonna fix you like I don't know like like that's gonna throw you off or like don't let them medicate you like that was actually some advice people gave me so uh, it was kind of bizarre or um yeah, just people thinking, like, you just needed a break. Like, yeah, well, what's wrong with needing a break, too, right? Um, but, yeah, I, I realized that even in this day and age, it was still a taboo conversation. Like, what is mental health? What is stress, anxiety, depression? Like, what is that actually? Oh, you just feel depressed, or you just... Just go for a walk. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I actually said that, like, that when I took time off, it still was after my health. I pushed through, I pushed through, I pushed through. And then finally, I think I say my brain broke because I, and that's when, like, the more of the depression and stuff set in. Um, I feel like there's a lot of things at play. Um, I feel like I got to a place where I was safe and to let, to break down in a way, right? And so I had, like, fought, 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 and then it was safe to break down. It wasn't pleasant, wasn't pretty. Um, but then you rebuild, right? So then I found floating. So I was like, hey, maybe I should not be doing roller derby and, and kickboxing. Like maybe I should try this like meditation yoga thing out or I don't know, like anything. Just try something different because um, like Western medicines work and I believe like if you need to be on medication, like you definitely should. And I was medicated for a long time and I found something that fit for me. Um, I have since been off of it, but it's something that I'm, you know, even just being a new mom, like um, being aware that it might be something that I need to, it's a resource I can use if I need to, right? A tool. Yeah, exactly. Um, And it was just like so much easier. And like, they're like, cause yeah, your highs are high, your lows are lows. Um, Some people like, oh, it'll make you a zombie. And it's like, okay, maybe I need to be a zombie for a little bit, but it didn't. It it actually just evened me out and made things a little bit easier to, to get through. Um, but anyway, so I found, I went, uh, my first float was in Gastown in Vancouver. And I was your kind of typical person, I guess, where I was like, I don't know if I can just sit there. Um, you know, I had some demons. I had some stuff that I had kind of avoided. And I was like, I don't want to be thinking about stuff in there. Like, my brain's going to be too busy. I had a lot of reservations about going in at first. But I was also excited and wanted to try something new. And I went with one of my good friends. And sure enough, as soon as I went in, um, my brain was just like going like just about nothing, just monkey brain, right? You're just like, 
like thoughts and you just like focus on certain things and I couldn't really relax then you kind of think about the environment oh this is unique oh I'm like in this dark space and like where's the door again and you're just thinking about everything and you're avoiding you're avoiding stuff um I felt like my brain was a messy file folder and like these files were getting pulled and it was like hey here's a song here's a memory and it was almost it wasn't relaxing at first it was kind of like exhausting but then there was a point in time where it just slowed down then stopped. And I guess this is like kind of flow state or meditation where you're not fully asleep, you're not fully awake. And all of a sudden time just goes so fast. And I was like, it was just the first time I really felt that calm and like shut off, took a break, like whatever you want to call it. And so when I got out, I was in the shower and I just was like, oh, this is like, I need this again. And I couldn't really explain what it was. Um, but I felt lighter and I felt like work had been done. And then I started thinking like reading up more about it and um, it can lower your cortisol, which is a stress hormone and like just how stress manifests in the body. Um, magnesium. Yeah, yeah, magnesium, exactly. Yeah, it's Epsom salt, like 1,100 pounds of Epsom salt. Um, and yeah, magnesium can affect your heart rate. Um, you sleep. So I mean, it's a vicious cycle when you're stressed and then you're not sleeping good and you need sleep to obviously resets and that's what it feels like a, a reset like they also call it like womb inception like you're it's very like you feel like you're being comforted you're just very safe in there um so I slept amazing that night um and then there's this positive like where you want to keep on moving in this positive healing direction right so yeah I just explored more I found out there was a lot of studies with it um and the effects of PTSD and um anxiety so a lot of people who have PTSD um are put on like um Ativan or lorazepam and it affects your um like the fight or flight response in your brain which is constantly heightened and so again not, like if you need to be on medication that's that's great but sometimes it's expensive sometimes it's not attainable and people self-medicate and so I found floating as like an alternative or even just like to help um like subsidize it in a way um so yeah it, it just like uh, it was just like that pause when the world feels like it's spinning too fast and you want off just pause hit the pause button and you kind of peace out for a bit um so I really really liked it but then it's kind of a buzzkill after you have to drive all the way back from Vancouver to Chilliwack I kind of undoes some of the work there um but it definitely was the beginning of me kind of exploring alternative like ways to manage um stress and anxiety and so yeah fast forward again back to like when I wanted to start my own business my friends like what about float therapy and I was like wow like this is an opportunity a selfish I could bring floating right into my backyard um but also it's something I want to share because I believe in it and I feel like it could help a lot of people and the more like there was a lot of work I did through counseling um where I used to have a lot of um barriers up and you're hardened and I feel like we've touched on that it's a good theme to kind of like reoccurs like um when we're talking about entrepreneurs kind of being hardened you're offering them a service and they're kind of like yeah sure if you want to because I I'm now a softer person I'm very proud of that I've I've uh, it takes more courage to be soft and um sometimes that leads to being gullible and yeah sometimes yeah I get into these things where I'm like oh they want to help me and then it's like oh there it is at the end it's the the pitch or the the catch if you will but you know I'd rather just be me and be optimistic and open-minded and if there's a catch then we've it's not a waste of time versus going back and just being hardened because then you miss opportunities of collaboration right so yeah. and so basically um 
I don't even know where I was going with that, but I guess... Um, what was the starting the business process like for <laughs> you? Because you understand the process of starting a business. You've seen businesses come through Van City time and time again, yes. what they require, um, what information they need to provide to you to get the loan for it. Mm -hmm. What was that process like? So that's definitely like, again, like, why do we like go and do these things and how do they affect our path? Like it, in a way, it all did kind of lead to this, like all of my, my background and experiences, good and bad schooling, work, life, all kind of came to this, this realization. So it started out more as a passion. Um, whereas like immediately it was like from brain, oh, I want to start a business into heart. Oh, this is a business I want to start. And I want to spread the floating to the world. And it just immediately went to heart, but went back to brain. And I was like, okay, what do we do? We do the business plan. So I started writing up the, the business plan and we talked about like, um, I couldn't really plan for viability, right? So to test viability, um, you start a business plan. And I think the business plan can be a, a dynamic document that helps you throughout your, your, your journey. But it's also, I realized, do as I say, not as I do. Because I started writing the business plan and it was hard to find information because we would be the first and only float center in Chilliwack. And the closest one at the time was in Langley. Um, there, there's not a lot, like there's, you know, yeah, there's just not a lot of resources. Although the resources that we had were pretty cool because they were very collaborative. Um, they just want more people floating too. So I found out a lot of people who have been float centers are more probably heart driven um, and financially motivated per se. Um, but I did it. So I started the business plan and I started looking for space. I need to find numbers. How much is build out going to cost? How much is it going to cost to lease a space? I need tangible numbers. And Chilliwack's a small town. And the more I talked about it, um, the more, I guess, word kind of spread. And to the point where people were like, oh, I heard there's a float center opening. And I was like, what? But then I found out that it was me. And I was like, oh, okay. And I, it sounds kind of corny, but I always say that like, Luna float, like I think sometimes ideas already exist, like the potential of them already exists and they're kind of like floating around in the air. And this one like floated down and I just simply got to facilitate the process. So That's beautiful. Thank you. So I live in Garrison um, and I was walking my dog with my partner. And again, this was as much as a business as it was more of like a rebirth, different kind of like thing for me right so I wanted to integrate work-life balance I, this is like an opportunity to kind of create something for myself too um so I was like wouldn't it be amazing if I could walk to work right and lo and behold all of a sudden these buildings are coming up like right down on Tama Highway and um coming soon and then the second development was like okay maybe that one like this one's too soon but I think this would be the whistle would fit in our timeline potentially and um that was pretty much yeah as far as like the business side of things go, we needed financing. So, oh, back to the apartment that I had for 10 years that like was potentially a crap investment if you look at like a short span, but I held on and I long term and then, you know, it wasn't, it was not a success story in terms of, oh, I made so much money. You know, I barely got back what I put into it 10 years ago. Not a great investment, but I learned so much and it built confidence and it educated me. And then when the time came, I was able to utilize that money. So it's kind of like I stashed it away somewhere. And so I used a little bit of that um, but yeah, basically the business plan, there's different reasons why you'd write a business plan. In this case, we needed financing. So I was writing it to the audience of lenders, which obviously I know how to speak to lenders because I am one. Um, 
So I feel like that was a huge asset for me. Um, How long is a business plan? How many pages? How it many depends. I mean, it could be 20 pages. It can be pretty short. It depends on who your audience is. Um, if you're going for lending, sometimes they have templates. So it's always good to have that. Um, investors but you can even have like a working document for yourself and go back and look at it but this is where i have to say like i'd love to say that i wrote this amazing business plan and i loved it and i was 100 percent happy with it and that's why we are where we are today but i mean i really was just got to the point where heartbeat brain and i was like i don't care what the numbers say this is happening <laughs> right so um because it was frustrating too finding the numbers not knowing but just and i'm not recommending this by any means but yeah, it, the numbers became so not part of it anymore. It was more of providing the service to the community was the purpose and just believing and trusting that this made sense and that um, because it was going to be good for the community that it would work out. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, sometimes I think, I mean, that's the beauty about entrepreneurs, right? Sometimes it's just passion and, you know, you have to like rein them in a bit. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I think they are um, role models is because for the most part, it is this, I see a need. Mm -hmm. The banks might not see a need. The yeah. financial institutions, it might not make logical sense. I see the need. I, yeah. I see the benefit. And I'm going to go with that because yeah. that your story reminds me of Bill's in that he was like trying to get a loan, trying to get support, trying to get mm -hmm. understanding. And he saw this, nobody's doing local meat. Well, 15 years later, now it's everybody wants local meat. And that's yeah. the most reasonable, logical thing to want. And everybody's on that fad. But mm -hmm. 15 years ago, he was fighting an uphill battle trying to yeah. raise awareness of the benefits that this could bring. And I mean, financial hat on, yes. Obviously, like it's good to have numbers and be able to be confident and present these things. But numbers aren't going to help you sleep at night. Well, I mean, they might. But they're not going to keep you going. Like That's not going to be your why sustainably yeah. your why has to be more of that purpose piece so i think it's it's balance ultimately um and i mean there's things i would have done differently but um yeah like we're learning and we've added services since then um and we were only this october is gonna be four years so we're still a very new business we're still growing we're still learning um yeah can you tell us about how you got some of the equipment because i think that that also shows how you mm -hmm. set yourself apart, how you were looking for the best, most mm -hmm. cost effective, but also the most local ways to go about doing things. We were, again, timing was, oh, dragonfly. Um, timing was amazing. Uh, I, Van City is all about supporting local. I, making like local makes sense just for like carbon footprint wise, like when you're shipping stuff. And I also have like a financial background, not necessarily a plumbing and electrical background. And um, I knew that being a float center owner would, pull out a lot of different um, skills that I, I would need to learn or I always would say like if you're not good at it if you don't like it pay someone or bring those people on as team members you can't do everything or else you're going to burn out right so I'm definitely a big advocate of trying to prevent burnout for entrepreneurs as well because you do try to just take it on and do everything so I was like it'd be nice to have someone on the team who was local who could help you know us a little bit more um, it was easy. I found ProFloat. They were living in Agassiz and they were manufacturing float cabins in Chilliwack. Like, what are the odds? Right? Yeah. And so they actually aren't in business anymore. They are beautiful, passionate people. And again, it's that balance of passion, but also having that financial side of things too, right? 
And I feel like that's the, you have to, it's a balance. And if you go too far on one end, then sometimes it's not sustainable, right? You burn out or money runs out or whatever it might be, right? So you, it's navigating that balance. And that's, I'm more saying that out loud to remind myself. Um, but yeah, they chose to close their business after I think about five or six years. So we, again, just lucked out getting in that window. We got four of their float tanks. They came and installed it. Um, and we went with them because it was like, they're the only Canadian float tank manufacturers. Wow. And they were the only ones. I don't think anyone's making them in Canada right now. So opportunity for someone. Um, and they also, I liked the style of them. So float tanks, like we use the term float tanks or float pods or float pools or float cabins. And some are open. I've actually just recently seen someone who converted their pro float cabins into like an open concept, basically just taking the roof off. And you're just like floating in a room, like a pool in a room, which is really cool. Something I might look into. Um, then there's pods that kind of look like clamshells. I was in a tank, which they're very like old, like they're like the original, like floating is actually back from like 1950s. A neuroscientist um, invented them. And yeah, it was very like old sci-fi kind of looking thing. And you open a hatch and can't go in. I loved it. I mean, it was great, but there are people who float for so many different reasons. And I felt like they're, I wanted to um, keep as many, I want to make it as accessible to, for the most majority of people, right? So I felt like some of the feedback I had heard was a mobility, right? People are coming in for aches, pains, um, chronic pain, arthritis, fibromyalgia, all sorts of things. And like, we want them to be able to get in and out of the tank easily and safely. Um, the other is, well, people having PTSD or even just being claustrophobic or anxious, um, a bigger, more spacious tank is going to be more inviting. So that check those boxes as well. Yeah, that's amazing. And what has some of the response been? Uh, before we get to the responses, what is what did you try and make the environment? Because I've been there, yeah. and I think that the environment is so important because it's this whole other vibe that you're you're not in. It doesn't feel like a business. It doesn't mm -hmm. feel like you're trying to sell something. Like it's not. There's not a big sign that says all of your pricing on it. There's. Yeah. It's not stressing that aspect of it it seems mm -hmm. like that part is very laid back and then the environment you've created mm -hmm. i think goes hand in hand with the float tanks yeah thank you and that yeah that was intentional and then it's an environment it's, it doesn't feel like a, a business um so part of yeah research and development was i got to float a lot of different places and actually our contractor had already floated before too and so it was really nice to be partnered with them um again he has this invested interest because he's getting a float center built and he's getting to build it and so we're seeing what we like and what we don't like at other centers um and you know taking what we do and omitting what we don't um it's awesome because floating was getting more popular this is a beautiful but like dragonfly i'm just amazed um, uh they're getting more popular which is great um so with that is the owner's kind of personality comes through. And so almost like tattoo, I use the tattoo shops as an example. Um, maybe back back in the day, I say, um, they were a little more rough around the edges where, you know, you're thinking like, I wouldn't take my grandma to this tattoo shop. I don't know, right? It's just like, yeah, rough around the edges. Whereas now you can go to a tattoo shop that like all different kinds, like there's just different energies and vibes and you can pick which one is best for you kind of thing, right? Um, so what, how that relates to floating, I guess, is there's some where it's a very, like their background is in 
energy work, spiritual, metaphysical even kind of thing. And you go in and it smells like patchouli and, you know, and that's like totally fine. And it's, and that floating for them is like the deep dive into meditation and, um, that sort of thing. And, um, yeah, you just definitely get that hippie vibe. And some people who don't identify with that are just going to be like, oh, this isn't for me. And I wouldn't want that. And like not saying that the other centers like should only do what I do. Like I think like it's because so many center owners, this is an extension of them that it makes sense. And they're kind of, that's who they're attracting and that's fine. Or maybe I'm completely wrong. Who knows? Um, and then there were um, ones <laughs> that were like kind of clinical. Like I floated in one that felt like I was like Steve Jobs, like created this. It was like an Apple product. It was just like white. And yeah, it was, yeah, and it was fine. It was just kind of sterile. And, and it's not, again, not that it was bad. Um, floated a lot of float houses. What I liked about theirs that we kind of adopted was just the simple concrete, polished concrete floor. Um, yeah, just simple was more the best, the best kind of thing. Growing up in Chilliwack, um, I also feel like there was this, um, this feeling that like, oh, it's a spa, it's a health spa. And like, sure, it's a place that you can rest, treat yourself, self-care, hashtag self-care, <laughs> whatever. Um, but I also saw it as like the, the clinical side of things, um, you know, the therapeutic side of things, but not making it feel therapeutic and clinical. Um, so I just, I knew that there was, again, this is part, it goes back to the business plan. If you're trying to figure your demographic and as a lender, you don't want someone to say, everyone's my demographic. You want to try to really pinpoint that. But at the same time, my heart's like, I don't want to turn anyone away. Like this can be for anyone. We've had as young as like six years old and we've had as old as, I think I had someone who was like 90 some odd float. Like it's, it, age isn't really getting in the way. Um, people float for so many different reasons. So it's like, I usually try to think of it more as that. And even that's hard because I float for many different reasons. Like, and each float's different for me. It might be more of a physical float or I just fall asleep and I needed to. You get the float you need, not the float you want all the time. Whereas other times it's a very, more of like a spiritual feeling, meditative, helps me sleep. I know I need to float when I'm starting to get cranky, um, snarky, <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, so it helps me with my stress and anxiety, but it also like has physical benefits too, right? So um, but that being said, people might be attracted and come to us for a specific reason and then find out on their own that it helps them with other things. So they might come because they've been in a motor vehicle accident. They heard it was good for their back and neck pain or maybe the trauma associated with that accident. Um, people who come in who have, yeah, like I said, chronic pain or they're doing it for meditation. Um, they're doing it for athletic recovery. A lot of athletes actually have them, which has been kind of cool. Um, a lot of like again, twofold, helps them, their mental gym, like helps their mental game. Um, Steph Curry, basketball, uh, he did a commercial um, with a float tank, which was super cool. And it was about how he uses it to get his mind in the game and also to decompress after a game, you know, when he feels like maybe he, he missed that basket and now he has that weight on him. Yeah. Um, but it also is good for the athletic piece, like the muscle recovery. Yeah. So anyways, I mean, there's lots of different benefits and I just wanted to make sure everyone felt like it could be that this could be for them. And, um, we had typically like older men come in and they're like, this is a spa. I send my, my old lady to, which who uses that term? But yeah, so this is what they were saying. And it was like, I, I want them to feel like it's for them too. Like, why wouldn't it be? So I didn't want it to feel overtly spa ish, overtly feminine, um, just neutral and kind of like anyone could feel that they belong there. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I'm glad I achieved that, hopefully. Um, and I mean, actually, our membership and our, our clients, I mean, are indicate that we do like every day is different some days we have all like all morning it's like oh just all men or you know and um or we'll have someone floating who's yeah like a young like 20 year old man then we have like a 70 year old woman floating across the, like the hall yeah. and and that's awesome i love that and then they can connect even to that oh like hey you float like you just kind of like someone else floats you're like yeah, you I get, get it. it. I get it. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. What has some of the feedback been from some of the people who are regular users? Um, what has their response been? It was funny. We actually just celebrated someone's 100th float. Wow. She's a nurse. And I see a lot of people, um, like first responders, nurses, paramedics, firefighters, like we, um, RCMP, like people coming in um, to decompress, like people, caregivers, people who they give so much of themselves to their work moms right and um they're replenishing themselves or filling their cup kind of thing right um and it was funny because i i got to know her when i was working there more and sometimes floats are more like introspective where you're like you just you want to like keep that quiet and so you just you just kind of like, nod they like leave they float away where other times people like want to talk they're just like whoa i just had this thing and i want to share it and you're like i'm here for it tell me everything and so again, you really connect with these people. And so I wanted to be there. Actually, I had to bring my baby. So I was just like, I just want to like congratulate her and thank her. Like, I'm so grateful. Like you have spent a hundred, well, a hundred times 90, like 900 and 900 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Is that right? Math? I thought, I don't know. Anyways, the flow, it's 90 minutes. And she did that a hundred times at our space. And she laughed. She's like, oh, what are you doing here? Oh, I, oh, your baby's so cute. And I was like, I'm here because like, and then I gave her a little like, gift or whatever. But I wanted that personal touch because I was just like, like, thank you. Like, you know, she's like, why are you thanking me? Like, I get the benefit out of floating. Like, I'm not doing you a favor. <laughs> and I was like, I had to laugh. I was like, I guess. But, you know. That's the collaboration. Yeah. That, like, neither of you are looking <laughs> yeah. selfishly at it. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's just taking the time. And I feel like there's so many reasons to not make the time. And I get into this pitfalls myself. Like, I own the business. I live seven minutes away and there's still times when I get in my own way of like not making the appointment. So even just making the appointment, setting time aside to do something that you know is restorative, that's going to help you long term is like, that's the first step, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, one of my favorite stories um, was a member who, uh, I say member because like they're like, we have monthly memberships and then people who just come in and buy packages and that's fine too. Um, whatever works for people. But he actually won a three pack and he was XRCMP. And uh, he was kind of one of those guys who was like, what is this? What? Like, no, like, is this a spa? Uh, I don't go to spas. Like, I'm a tough man. And I was like, okay, well, it's not. It's this. And um, like, again, I'm not knowing anything on his background. Like, these are like all of the like, laundry list of why someone might float, right? And I always usually use my own example. And he's like, oh, I guess I'll try it. But he, and he was like, as much as I might make him seem kind of rude, he wasn't. He just like this like kind of grizzly, grizzly bear guy. And um, so he came for his first float and he hated it. <laughs> he got out early and he was like, that was stupid. Like you're just sitting there doing nothing. And like, and he, you could tell he was like kind of like wound up, right? And um, I was like, well, you know, like, often very people like people are very busy and like just taking that time to pause is, is usually much appreciated but it's also a practice like you don't just get it like I then I should have shared my experience yeah my first time wasn't like I didn't love it the first 30 minutes um it was work that had to be done 
Um, so it's kind of hard where it's like, yeah, the customer isn't always right. Like you're educating them, you're listening, you're sharing, like holding space with them um, and not imposing, but you're just kind of like giving them general guidelines that, hey, that's normal to feel that way. Um, but also, what if you tried to stay in a little bit longer? What would that look like if you if you did this like push through that? Um, but yeah, he's like, I wish there was a clock in there, knowing which time, like what time it was. I'm like, I'm like maybe it's you know the illusion of control, and maybe the lesson is that you're you need to learn to not you know feel like you have to have that control. And he's like, okay, well, I'll see you tomorrow, whatever, right? And so he books another appointment because he has three. So I have to yeah, give him accolades for doing that. So he came for a second time. He stayed in like double the time, but not the full time. And he came out and he was like, yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't get it. Like, he's like, I don't, he's like, it's just boring. Like people pay you to do this. Like he was kind of like, but he was more like just jabs. Like he was kind of joking. Right. But now he's opening up and he's like, well, you know, he's like, I think I might've fallen asleep for a bit. And he's like, and I woke up in the dark and I didn't actually feel like he's like, normally that's a trigger for me. And I was like, oh, okay. So then he starts, like, his walls are starting to come down. And he's like, yeah, he's like, I only sleep, like, three hours a night, maybe, max. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. Like, that's not great. I'm like, come here just to sleep. Like, it's safe to fall asleep. You're not going to sink. You're not going to roll over. And he's like, yeah. He's like, well, I have one more. I guess I'll give it another chance or whatever. And then his, yeah, his wife used to pick him up. So I happened to be there when he came in for his third float. And he... I think he stayed the whole time or he got out a little bit early, but he like, and he came out and he just was like, yeah, like I get it. And he's like, he's like, it was, it was hard. And he's like, I still like struggle. He's like, but I feel safe there. And I feel like, yeah, like safe. And then he just starts sharing a lot of stuff. And, and then he actually realized like the light bulb went on that part of this group that he belongs to, um, that were helping men with PTSD, um, had mentioned floating and he just didn't make the association that this is what they were talking about. And so he's like, yeah. So he felt kind of proud. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm doing that. And so he ended up signing up for a membership and he floated with us twice a month, like on the same night every, you know, because he needed that kind of consistency. But I just love that because it's not about like forcing someone into like seeing it our way. And like you, ha everyone has to love floating. Like that's definitely not it. Maybe it's not for everyone. I think it could be for anyone. But um, the not giving up, the being a little bit brave to just kind of face this guy and be like, kind of laugh with him about his little remarks and, but helping him explore that. And so it's nice to have that opportunity to talk. We don't always get to, and we're not counselors. We're not therapists. Like we definitely don't do that, but it's, it's a self-guided kind of experience, right? Yeah. To, just to that counseling point, I think that we wouldn't need so much counseling if we had stronger connections and if we were able to be more real with our mm. friends and family in so many ways. I've just watched peers of mine not feel com like I know they're not opening up to anyone ever. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, you need counseling because you're yeah. not talking about all of the things you're going mm -hmm. through. And I know you're going through plenty. And so I just feel like I, I even think obviously with people who do have strong family supports, they may need yeah. counseling. But I think that the reason so many more mm -hmm. people need it right now is because these all of our interactions feel so staged that like mm -hmm. I go into the subway save on whatever the store is they say hey how are you mm -hmm. I say good fine um they say how's your day going I say good they say good like yeah, we leave it's robotic that's that becomes so much of our life that I think that mm -hmm. we see that a lot and for me I used to get stuck in my head and I say like gaslit myself where I'd be like is that what I think well and then I would rationalize it or I would like down like talk down to it like oh no or this is the excuse or this is probably why and so it would just stay up there and like that's I think the biggest thing for me that counseling did was like 
she would ask all these thoughtful questions, which I think you're amazing at really pulling out those thoughtful questions and getting a good response. Um, so she'd ask a question and I'd just be like, like in my head, I'd have an answer, but then I'd analyze the answer before I say it. And just that it's a safe place. And like, if you say something, like we can then explore it. It doesn't just like, you don't say something and now it's this like static, that is you. you You're are. right. Exactly. And so just that permission, that freedom to, to speak freely, to think freely and like let it out. Um, it was invaluable. And then floating, I think, is like, yeah, you're not really speaking out loud, but you can process things. And it gives you time like to pause because so we're so inundated with like stuff and like and then you avoid things by scrolling Facebook or and while you're watching, not watching a show on TV and like and you go to bed and um, you don't sleep good because your brain's still probably trying to process things that you've been avoiding. And you wake up and then you just like plug back into everything and yeah, so floating for me is just that time to pause and then see if there's anything that needs to be addressed, right? That was definitely my experience because I'm a person I was doing, when I first went floating, I was doing law school two and a half hours into UBC, two and a half hours back every day, five days a week, mm -hmm. um, just exhausted by the end of the day, frustrated by having to mm -hmm. wait there for so much time and being able to understand and learn about it first, I think did me a huge benefit because I would have been like mm -hmm. that guy yeah. who I'm very much dismissive before I'm, and then I learn about it yeah. afterwards. And for that experience, I was like, you know what? I'm going to learn about it first. Rebecca was a little bit hesitant. She's like, I don't want to be locked in a box. You want to lock me in a box? And I was like, <laughs> I don't want to lock you in a box. I want you to yeah. have something that helps you relax. And so we did the research. We looked at your website. We mm -hmm. watched the videos. We learned about it first. And they were like, yeah. um, don't judge it until you've done three times. And I was like, okay, I'm going to lock that into my head because my first time is my first time. And so yeah. it's likely that I'm going to want to get out soon. It's likely that I'm going to have all these thoughts. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a great headspace Netflix show that um, talks about meditation. Mm -hmm. And so we were watching that and it watching that was kind of like, oh, this is tough, like just with my own thoughts. And so going into it, knowing that first and feeling like this isn't going to be the time, but this mm -hmm. isn't going to be, this isn't, this first time isn't going to work for me. Like I just, I know myself, it's not going to work. Yeah. It worked because I had already owned that I'm going to, oh, there's a thought. Oh, there's another thought. Oh, there's another thought. Okay. Yeah. How many more? And I, I forget who's, it might've been the Headspace Netflix documentary that was like just instead of getting frustrated with new thoughts coming in just ask what the next one's going to be and eventually you'll run out of them yeah and so oh, I did that cool. and then I ended up relaxing and my first float experience was very positive but if you go into it thinking first time is going to be knocking out of the park and yeah. I'm going to be the zen master it's like probably <laughs> probably go into it with the yeah. other mindset can you tell us about the other aspects of luna float what are neuro spa and the sauna Right. So um, we brought in the NeuroSpa next. I realized like while floating is like my passion, there was extra space that we weren't utilizing. Um, and I wanted to bring in more like modalities, more services. And I had tried this NeuroSpa chair in Vancouver at a different float center. Uh, I think it's called Pure Rest or Pure Float. And it was cool. It was just like, I didn't know much about it, but it was also manufactured, um, patented and manufactured in Montreal. Um, so it was basically just super relaxing and helped prepare me for a float, but it also can be standalone. So I felt like it complemented our services because floating, typically 90 minutes, you can get out early if you want, like that between the one hour and one and a half hours. Like I'd rather people have the, the time and potentially not need it than we turn the music on and they're like, oh, like that's probably a good business tactic, like leave them wanting more. But like, no, I want them to get the full experience. 
um, go deep and, and that sort of thing. So 90 minutes um, can be a barrier for people. So I wanted a service that would be less time so people could still treat themselves, still get some of that self-care, um, or it can help extend or prolong their flow. So um, the NeuroSpa uses lights, music, and acoustic vibrations, like in the synergy kind of way. And it's neat because it's like very physical, but also mental and emotional. Like it kind of touches on everything. So there's different settings um, that to me seem very similar, um, but the after effects are just slightly different. One is more relaxing, really good for before float or before bedtime. The other one's more energizing, great way to start your day, right? You're just like, you feel kind of tingly and like energized, but like not how you would after coffee, like not jittery, energized, but not jittery. A an instant mood booster. Like I tell people, like, try not to smile in there because it's just like, you just can't. It's So you're lying in this zero gravity chair and you put on a headset and then this like um, kind of like roof comes over top and on the roof is a painting. And it, I was like, this is kind of weird. Like it's a hand painted uh, scene of like basically like the Aurora Borealis and like mountains. And it's, it's not much to look at. You're just kind of like, okay. But then once um, you turn it on, so from your lower lumbar, the vibrations start and it goes through like your body. Like you eventually start feeling it going through your, your fingertips and your toes. And I've had people tell me, that the, their sore neck felt better and that they slept better afterwards. Um, but yeah, then there's lights projecting on the screen. And so the, pic, the picture of the painting actually looks like it's kind of moving. Um, so yeah, definitely a strobe effect. Um, you can have your eyes open or closed. I, I like to compare things to nature because I feel like there's so many elements, of, elements in nature um, that are medicine, obviously. Um, and I mean, this is maybe not necessarily nature, but you're in a car driving or you're the passenger and like the sun's passing through the trees so i mean you could, this can also be the sun passing through trees that are swaying and stuff and you have that it's almost like hypnotic like you're just like your eyes are starting to get heavy and you're just like that rhythmic kind of feeling and that's exactly how how i feel right um and it just yeah feels good so that was something it's unique it's something quicker for people um, and that's basically that, like there's, it's not the same as float therapy where there's a lot of research being done. Um, that is it, a, like a patent in technology that combines different things like chromotherapy and vibration, like music therapy and that sort of thing. Right. Kind of like, which is not my forte, for example. Um, and then infrared sauna came at popular demand. People just, it was listening to the people. They, you know, nowadays like people are living in apartments and sometimes, and, or they just don't have the space, like we can afford to just have a sauna. Um, so what I liked about the infrared sauna is that like, if you think about culturally, like saunas, sweating, like Sweat transcend lodges. a lot of different cultures, right? Like, um, I guess I'm First Nations. I also have like, I'm part Irish. I have some Scandinavian roots and like you think about like, yeah, like the the steam rooms and the saunas, and or even like J Japanese culture. Like there's so many cultures that this is like part of. Yeah, and sweat lodges, like obviously, um, that it was like okay, not like it just makes sense that it's like obviously when you see that many cultures have like a similar modality that that there's obviously got to be something to it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I like that um, 
yeah, just for like the cathartic feeling of it, aches and pains. It's again, 30 minutes and there's something about sweating that's just releasing, right? Yeah, because it gets rid of the heavy metals in your body. Yeah, there's heat people shock use it for so many different reasons. Yeah, we had someone who had um, Lyme disease that was um, like prescribed, like recommended it. Um, yeah, again, athletes, um, yeah, people with chronic pain, like there's um, different like blood pressure issues and... Yeah. And how did the name come about, Luna Float? Because it sounds peaceful just to say it. Oh, yay, I'm glad. So I wanted something, I mean, again, don't know if this was a good business strategy, but I wanted something that made people think, well, what is that? Like, that's curious. Like, I'm curious. Some places are called, like, you know, Serenity Float, or, and I feel like, well, obviously, I want people to feel serene. I don't want to impose too much of, like, a description on my business because I want it to be open to their own interpretation, right? So Luna Float to me, just like obviously Float because that's our main service at the time, the only service we had. Um, I felt like there was a lot of different overlaps. So Luton, Luna is Latin for moon. Um, I always liked the moon. I liked nighttime because it's quieter. Typically it's peaceful people. It's just more of a calm. Um, you can like just look at the moon and feel kind of calm, I guess. Um, also, there's the the, um, the tie-in that me personally, I was going through different phases, and often that is comparable to the moon's phases. That like you're still the moon, like the moon's the moon, no matter what phase they're in, and that I'm still me, regardless of what phase I'm currently in, um, and just embracing that kind of like metamorphosis, and that other people, I'm inviting them to do that as well. Uh, and then lastly, I'm kind of a nerd, and I just thought, like, the moon affects the tides. We are kind of like that water nature element that, um, I mean, we call it water, but it's really like 1,100 pounds of Epsom salts, uh, magnesium sulfate, uh, saturates of much more like the Dead Sea, where it's that super mineral-rich um, solution. Um, but salt water nonetheless, right? So I was like, okay, that's like the tides and... I don't know. It just seemed like it, again, part of like the process. It just clicked and it just made sense to me. Well, let's wrap up. You mentioned before the song and we said we were going to get back to that. So I think you were referring to the song Lucky Me by Big Sean with the magnesium mm. deficiencies. And yeah. Stuff. Yeah, that was just like, um, well, I kind of touched on that with, um, um, do you remember, do you know the lyrics off? The top of your, yeah. Of course. Okay, well, do you want to tell them the lyrics? I, can, I don't remember that aspect. Oh, no, no, no worries. I think I took a picture of it. I, like, screenshotted it. Um, or maybe it's in our chat history. But um, basically, do, can I look at it up on my phone? Absolutely. Okay, because I feel like this was a cool, when I met Aaron, how we connected. Um, yeah, because Big Sean has, um, he was having heart palpitations and the doctors were saying something similar. They wanted to do surgery on him. And then he was speaking with his mother who convinced him to try magnesium um, because in Western civilization, many of us have magnesium deficiencies. Okay, so this is a screenshot. Uh, oh, I can't even see when you sent it to me, but like last year probably. Yeah. Or no, yeah. Um, so I don't know how the tune goes, but... Um, so this was part of like when I was saying that I was sick and that it manifested like physically, even though it was really a lot of stress and anxiety. And again, no doctor wants to actually do the dig or not. My original doctor didn't want to do the digging. Yeah. He just wanted to prescribe me pills and put a pacemaker in me. Um, and he didn't even like we didn't even go into like, yeah, what was happening in my personal life. Yeah. We didn't talk well, about that. Yeah. No, exactly. 
And um, yeah, and so like my other doctor, like yeah, we so she found like the mental health piece of it way like right away. She was like, I can tell you are struggling, and like that's okay. Like we can fix that. And like it was more of a holistic approach, right? Um, and then so anyway, so I'll read it out. But it says, man, lucky me, I was diagnosed with a heart disease at 19. Could barely stand on my feet. Doctor said they had to cut it open, put a pacemaker on it to put it back on beat. So my mama took me to a holistic doctor and they prescribed me magnesium for two weeks. Went back to the regular doctors and they said, huh, damn, looks like we don't need to proceed. Yep. And I, he sent that to me and I was like, because I told him my story and he was like, um, that's this song. And I'm like, no, I didn't steal it, I swear. Yeah, no, and <laughs> I, I, my story. I think that that's an amazing aspect where music meets reality. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people, I think for a long time, looked at vitamins and supplements with kind of this eye roll, like, oh, you think that you're going to live forever. Yeah. And we really neglected, because I think that that's a part of self-care, just like yeah. floating should be, is yeah. making sure you have all the supplements you need. I take magnesium every single night, mm -hmm. because I take way too much caffeine, even though I know it's not good for me. I I'm... still am up on coffee, caffeine yeah. pills. I still do all of that, because I like, if I'm doing an interview I want to be sharp I don't want to risk mm -hmm. oh, I didn't get a great sleep like I know I need yeah. to be sharp for it so making sure I have the magnesium yeah. at night got rid of my restless leg syndrome that I had forever and would drive Rebecca crazy <laughs> because we'd be watching a movie and my feet would just be moving back and forth on the bed like I'm walking down the road yeah because I couldn't stay still wow. and hearing lyrics like that like on that same no on his last album was the bigger than me song yeah where he talks about being like realizing he made so much money and things are bigger than him those are the types of songs i try and show people yeah. because i think rap gets a really 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 bad name from hmm. some artists that everybody knows yeah but those types of songs well i was just like wow like that's me and like i think that's why stories are so important because you can see yourself in that and it just makes it better and i think it's like you don't want to make assumptions like um like for me i found floating really helped me and i actually my doctor told me I could slowly come off of my antidepressants and slowly I forgot to refill my prescription and so I ended up just stopping them cold turkey and I was like oh, I'm fine so it should be okay it was horrible and by like half like I don't know a few days into it I was having brain zaps and it was like just really bad and I was like well maybe I should just go back on them but I wasn't sure how far I had come yeah. like past it so I floated and it was so humbling because I was like, this was my story. I have anxiety. But then being medicated, I actually didn't have a lot of the symptoms. And so I felt better. So then I'm like, well, is floating really doing anything? And then one eight was like, saved me from like, it was just like a bad place. But I got through it and I didn't have to go back on medication. I always just try to have those open conversations because I'm like, I'm, while I'm saying floating can help, I'm not trying to say like, oh, down with pharmaceuticals. Yeah. Like, I feel like there's so, there's a time and a place. And people feel like again about my space my environment being welcoming is that people make assumptions and like they might think oh this person's going to try to heal me with crystals and and essential oils and it's like okay like hey we do have essential oils and crystals at luna float but like some things need medicine like we need antibiotics to get rid of um, infections and we need you know uh, other pills that potentially help us but there's also so much else that we can learn it's not one or the other it's like another tool right yeah. it's having those tools in your toolbox and uh yeah collaborative and kind of like combining them right so i never want to say oh it's going to replace chiropractic because it helps your back like no it can be both it's like it works together absolutely <laughs> and i think that that 
that gives credibility to what you're doing mm -hmm. because then because I know a lot of people who are like well I took this and if you take it you're just going to be just like me and I'm you're going to be cured as well and then yeah. you go I'm not you though and you don't know what I eat and you don't know what I do in a yeah. day and so how can I trust you yeah. when you're already saying things that I'm not 100% confident being able to say this yeah. is just another tool because I'm really big into like I'm up 7 a.m. till 7 p.m. working on stuff, trying to edit a podcast, work on law stuff, work on uh, NCCABC stuff, always trying to make the most out of my day. Because to me right now from like 25 to 35 are my grinding years. Like I need mm -hmm. to establish myself. I need to work hard. I need to get all of that organized. But that doesn't need to be independent from the well-being of my body and making sure that my body's up to the task. Yeah. And so it's how can I tie all the other stuff in to make sure that I'm well, making sure I go for runs, yeah. go to the gym, make sure that I relax and find ways to decompress mm -hmm. allows me to go back to those things with a clearer mind exactly. than I would have. And I think my generation's really into like self-optimization and really yeah. trying to make sure that we have all the tools to be successful. Yeah. And I think that that's likely the best way to go about it because a lot of people say like, you're your own doctor. When you go into the mm -hmm. doctor, you have to advocate for yourself. And they yeah. actually advise that you bring someone with you when you see the doctor because mm -hmm. you're going to downplay the problems. You're yeah. going to kind of, oh yeah, my leg kind of hurts sometimes. Well, your partner knows that you're in constant <laughs> agony all the time yeah. and you're just trying to be polite and not come that across. That was literally me when I was um, giving birth to our child. Yeah. I was having contractions and I kept on like messaging, texting my midwife like, hey, I think, I think it's happening. And... Uh, she was like because my texts were so lighthearted, and she was like mm, probably not and then he's like call her you're like crying and then like as soon as it's passed i was like oh it's fine yeah. and uh i called her but same thing on the phone customer service voice and then oh the direction and i anyways you know and he's like no and so yeah it was funny but you're right you're yeah because right. i watched rebecca struggle with that we would go into the hospital and she would be like yeah like i have some and it's like they're not going to take care they're not going to prioritize you they're not going to pay attention to you they're going to put you on the bottom of the priority yeah. list if we continue to approach it in this way yeah and so i was like just be honest and then all of a sudden she starts physically showing the pain she's in and then lo and behold everyone starts paying attention and going okay we need to get you in here we need to check out what's going yeah. on and it's like I think that people really like we keep being told that we live in a narcissistic society and mm -hmm. I, I have trouble believing that because I see people in constant agony I've seen people in different workplaces who are like I've always had a bad back and it's like why have you tried to fix it? Like, that's awful. Like, yeah. can, how are you living? And yeah. so being able to offer tools like this that are accessible, not intimidating, mm -hmm. and just the first experience can open so many doors to people because I think floating is a way into meditation for people, like mm -hmm. a gateway, because it's 90 minutes and you paid for it. And yeah. for people, like, like it or not, People think that things would be better if they're free, but we actually value things less if yeah. we give it away for free. That's a huge lesson for me. Yeah. yeah. And so I think it's important that people have to pay for it mm -hmm. and that they have to commit 90 minutes to it because mm -hmm. then there's less excuses where if you're just like sitting on the ground, I'm going to meditate now. It's like, oh, I need to just quickly check my bank account. Oh, yep. I just need to quickly clean the room and then I'll meditate. Oh, and then I'll make dinner and then I'll relax. Yeah. And then it never gets prioritized. That's it. That's our secret. That's like really, it is like that, in, like you set the intention, but then those are the, um, the tools in place that keep you accountable, right? Um, and it's funny because like uh, floating can be used as like but people call it biohacking, right? And it's still 90 minutes. Like 90 minutes in biohacking terms is still pretty long. But if you think about what that actually means, in that 90 minutes, you're actually 
like this isn't like proven but like people will say anecdotally that it's like if you fall asleep for one hour it's like four hours just because of that like if you're trying to put that much like rest relaxation meditation like it's it's condensed and so people don't want to make that time because they don't have the time and they're a busy entrepreneur it's like if you make the time like if you're an entrepreneur if you're creative and just to like not keep on grinding and actually just pausing and taking 90 whole minutes to just sit there and like you don't even know what like you can come up with your next greatest idea yeah. you can have a breakthrough like you just you don't know and uh it's such a unique experience and I encourage people to do it. Like, obviously like, yeah, you're not locked in a box. Like you can have the door open. It's yeah. It's just such a interesting tool that people have. And yet we're on our own worst enemies, right? Like we get in our own way. Yeah, absolutely. So. Can you tell us about your family and mm -hmm. about what it was like to have a child, what it was like for all of these things to kind of come together around the same time, Luna mm -hmm. Floats taking off, like all of these things are going on around you. What mm -hmm. was it like to become a mother and to move this next chapter of your life? And can you also tell us what, how you met your husband and what that was like? Sure. So I guess it's funny because the Man City is like, obviously, I guess a pretty big part of my life. I actually met him through Man City. Yeah. I opened uh, one of his business accounts. Not that I date my my clients, but that's technically the first time I met him, which is somewhat significant because Chilliwack, you think you almost know everyone. Like back in my day, there was only two high schools, Chilliwack or Sardis. I played sports. My parents grew up here. I kind of knew everyone in my age group. It felt like my friend group went to UFB. So actually I went to UFB um, with his one of his friends who was his business partner. And anyways, there's all these like connections. Um, we could have met each other 10 times over throughout our childhood and we never did. Um, so yeah, no, I met him in that instance, which was interesting. But it wasn't until about a year and a half later, we never bumped into each other for like a whole year and a half. And um, yeah, then we did. It was, we we're like, hey, like the stars aligned, I guess. And we were just like, like, we're not dating, we're not doing those things, but let's go for coffee. Let's just like have a, like, let's chat, whatever. And yeah, our non-date date, and it basically never ended. We wouldn't stop talking. It was just that instant connection with someone. Um, yeah, it was, it was really cool. So, and that was, yeah, I guess about six years ago. Um, I had planned a trip to Europe by myself and I wanted to see if you wanted to come like I think I did that on my 30th birthday and then I was going to do it on my 31st like I bought the ticket and uh, he's like no go on your own I talked to him about yeah some of my struggles I was having um, and you know kind of that warning label like this is what you're signing up for and um, he was very supportive and when I came back from Europe it wasn't a super long trip like three weeks or something um, we ended up moving in with each other we actually ended up living like I lived in a carriage home um, in Garrison after I sold my house from downtown Chilliwack. We lived a minute away from each other. Like it was easier to walk than it was to drive. Um, so that was bizarre. Um, made for an easy move in. So yeah, I moved in with him. And pretty shortly after we had incorporated Luna Float. Um, and then we opened Luna Float. Yeah, October 2017. He proposed to me in November 2017, what like a month like? later. It was funny because like there's obviously some stresses when you open up a business, right? And this was like my, my, my first baby, besides my dog. She was my first baby, I guess. And so I'm like, oh, like I just, you know, I stress, I wanna make sure it works, fear of failure, all those emotions, right? Are just above the surface or just below the surface, I guess. 
And so apparently he yeah, had the ring, he wanted to propose, he wanted to maybe do it, but then I was just too like on edge. Yeah. And he was like, oh, I'm not too sure. Like I don't, I want her to be in a good mood. Like I want it to be perfect or whatever. And um, so yeah, then after the, the excitement, again, being a very anxious person, like he knows not to surprise me. One time I didn't, I had the water running and I didn't hear him come home and I was brushing my teeth and he scared me. I like threw my toothbrush at him and screamed and was like crying and he was like, <sighs> so yeah, he knows not to, not to surprise me. So he was like, I want to surprise her, but I don't want to terrify her. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, it was, it was nice. Um, he had planned um, a nice evening in November, like we went out for dinner and stuff like that. And we were like going to stay out in the city and I didn't really expect anything because I, I thought it was just like, oh, we're just celebrating are like a month that hey we, we opened a business a month ago like now we finally kind of things are settling down so it was very smart because i didn't suspect it um so yeah he proposed and then we got married the following year september 2018 um we had uh we went to vegas right after for like a little quick kind of honeymoon because still relatively new business um it was hard to be away for very long um lesson to learn is like delegation on my part it's hard to delegate right um and then we actually went our big thing we went on an italian or we went on a like cruise around italy um yeah um we went to rome and then we basically ended up in um venice and we went to like the Amalfi coast i don't know how to... people do this but every time people start telling me about their travels they like rush through it oh please elaborate a little. Uh, well yeah i mean we we just we did a cruise one of my friends had used that cruise line a lot and so originally i started planning okay let's we're gonna travel and kind of like i had backpacked backpacked europe i say I backpacked europe but like i was 30 years old i was like okay i have enough financial means to like stay in hostels that were nice and like have a private room so like and i was only going for a few weeks it wasn't like i had to have my dollar stretch over a year or something right yeah. so i say i backpacked but it was pretty pretty nice boutique mo like ho hostels i was staying at and i did amsterdam and paris basically i was going to go to germany and i never made it because i just liked where i was so i was going to kind of apply that same mentality and i changed plans on the fly i booked hotels on the fly um so we were going to kind of do that and we both were just like we want to like we probably aren't going to have an opportunity to do this for a very long time so like we want to make it count we want to see a bunch of things we don't want to be overly inundated with plans figuring out how to get vehicles and so we're like let's a cruise seems like an easy way to see a lot of places um get a little taste of it and then maybe when we have the time and the means we can go back to one place that we really like or whatever that was the mentality and i loved it it was so great it was like cruising so easy but yeah so we did rome the Amalfi Coast, massive lemons. Um, and I mean, we love, I love food. We love food, um, wine. It was, it was really good. We did like lots of different, like kind of sightseeing and stuff like that. Um, we went to um, uh, the Mediterranean or what was it? Um, Sicily, we got super burnt on the beach. That wasn't fun. We went to Croatia, a, a port in Croatia where like the Game of Thrones he never watched Game of Thrones, my partner. I haven't seen it either. Okay, well, you guys are in good company. But there's this place in Game of Thrones that's that's uh, filmed there, so that was pretty cool. Um, I mean, yeah, it, it it was it was really nice. He is a type of partner, and this is like one of the things, like just like you open a business, like all these things that are potentially like stressful things, and to have a partner who like brings that calmness into the chaos. <laughs> um, so traveling, like we never had an issue. Like there's no arguing. It's just like pretty smooth. 
like everything's an adventure. And at the very end, we had a couple of like mishaps that normally would just like, make me stressed out. But because, you know, I had him there, it was, and he was almost the one, he, like I took a picture of him because a bus basically in Venice stopped somewhere, like nowhere on our way to the airport to get back home eventually. Um, yeah, our, our, the trip there was amazing. And the trip back, it was like wrought with some frustrating elements. So the bus stopped. We all got out. They're speaking Italian. We were kind of confused. So we all got out. And then a bus pulls up and everyone's getting back in. They left us. The doors just, like, we weren't being assertive enough. And we just, like, the doors closed and they just drove off. Wow. And we were the only two left behind. And we're like, um, what just happened? And I thought it was hilarious. And I took a picture of him because he's, like, kind of got this, like, grump face. And I was like, I've never really seen him ruffled, right? Yeah. And I was just like, this is hilarious. And normally I would be like, oh, my gosh, like, so stressed out with it. And I was like, this is fun. And it worked out. It all worked out. We still caught our plane on time. Our plane uh, actually had to make an emergency landing in Quebec because we ran out of gas because we were stuck on the tarmac for so long. We ended up having to stay in Toronto overnight oh my god because we missed our connecting flight but guess what we did we woke up in the morning we had seven hours to kill we went to a float center we went floating um we tried their their sauna before we had the infrared sauna so that was another thing that kind of like helps add to like hey we should get the sauna wow, that's pretty so yeah cool. you always look for the opportunity and something like it sucked we missed our dog we missed our bed but you just you make the best out of these situations and yeah, it was it was really cool. We would definitely go back. Um, there's so many different things, and I'm glad we did it because, like, then of course, like with COVID and everything. Yeah. But that was in the spring. Well, I guess of 2019, and then at the end of 2019, I found out I was pregnant, and we like planned it. We talked about it, and uh, it happened a lot quicker than <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, this is real. And um, so I was almost three months, kind of like the time people start sharing the news. And, um, you know, it's getting warmer. It's the beginning of March. And my hoodies are just starting to get a little tight. And I was like, okay, let's start telling people, right? Like I had to tell, you have to tell your family first or, you know, we wanted to. My sister and her wife already knew. Um, I spilled the beans pretty quickly with them. But then all of a sudden it was like COVID and the pandemic. And I felt like our news, while amazing, it just was kind of smaller all of a sudden. Like, uh, and it just felt like kind of awkward. And, and then also the stresses of what does this mean yeah. for my business, for our child yeah. and like our life. And yeah, it was, it was interesting. And so, um, yeah, Luna Float closed like mid-March to, and we reopened June 1st. So we weren't affected too long. And in those months I grew a baby like the majority right of that's being done and so it was kind of funny when we reopened and people were like whoa like I know like quarantine people put on some weight but I was like no no this is a baby as well <laughs> and um it was nice it was nice to have that time like it was kind of intimidating because you don't have to just worry about yourself but you're worrying about your unborn child and so again my husband was doing most of the getting groceries and that sort of thing yeah um and but it was a nice time again like the illusion of control that we we have and just like I was trying to follow what's happening and how can I plan and how can I pivot everyone's like pivot pivot and I get it I get it but at the same time what about the pause why is it immediately pivot like we're going through some unprecedented time and you're immediately expected to just pivot that shit and like 
And it's like, no, like there's times to pause too, right? So I really just soaked that in, um, did the whole nesting thing, I guess. And it's funny, when I was pregnant, I actually found out um, when we did like the calculation or when we first went in, that my due date was on my birthday. And for me, a lot of the times, in a, like significant moments in my life happen in, on or around my birthday. So as soon as that was the date, I'm like, oh, this is real. I know this is happening. And we ended up having him uh, on the 20th, so three days after my birthday. Wow, that is yeah. amazing. And now we're planning his first birthday, Yeah. which, like, yeah, he's 11 months old. And it's bizarre to even think that it's like, yeah. It's bizarre. <laughs> that is wild. Because I remember meeting you around the time I think you were just opening up Luna Float again and we were learning about mm -hmm. this new space. Yeah, probably like, yeah, June or July. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it wasn't like we had a lot of extra time on our hands and we're like, we should have a baby with all this time. Like, we knew it would be challenging. Um, and you just, you don't, you never know. You can't even really prepare parents for it because you'll tell them it's like telling an entrepreneur that it's really hard work like they don't care they're gonna do it right and same thing no sleepless nights and it's hard and it's like yeah yeah whatever and maybe even being an entrepreneur might have prepared us a little bit for that um that just giving yourself to something bigger than you or something different and like um definitely the sleepless nights that entrepreneurship planned us or prepared us for um but again it's like you'll just figure it out you'll just learn you'll just figure it out, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, it was a lesson, again, in letting go. The lesson I need to learn still is delegating more, um, letting go of perfection, uh, and just, yeah, like just showing up, I guess, yeah. being, like, being kind to yourself. For both of us, like, we were very, like, we'll stay up late and we'll be working, like, in the office. Like, a lot of people are like, you guys are so busy, you're so busy. We have this awesome office where their desks, like, face each other. Um, and it's just like, we both were like, oh, we haven't gone through like, like an email, like would take us three days to respond to. And maybe that's like normal for people, but like for us, we're like, oh my gosh, like we're three days behind. But it's not a, even a question. Like when you have your baby in front of you, like what's the priority? Like yeah. you just, and so I feel like Olin, like our child, he has helped me really prioritize, like not prioritize, but be present. Because I find sometimes when you're an entrepreneur or even just, I mean, people who multitask, when you're multitasking, sometimes you're not multitasking as good as you really think you are, right? There's a, there's something to be said for focusing on one thing and doing it well versus trying to do all of the things. And maybe that's actually not the most efficient. Um, and like, or you're talking to a friend, but you're like, I want to check my phone. I want, and it's in your head and you're not doing it but you're not fully here either. And usually they can tell. And so the same thing is like, I would be taking care of my baby because he needs me. But my head was like business, business. Oh, these are all the other things I'm failing at right now. And that doesn't make me feel very good. And I'm sure like that comes out in a way, right? Of frustrations. Like you're frustrated because you're a baby <laughs> and I'm frustrated because like I have all these other things. And then just realizing that okay like why are these other things even affecting you like this is what's more important those things can wait and like just you're like juggling but um it just helped i don't know provide more grace in that transaction or that transition um yeah so he's really taught me to be present and to 
Like I never really realized I could shut those things off. I just always thought they were there, right? The chatter. Yeah. yeah. Like and just like that. Oh, that these the tasks are like waiting for me. They're just like, come on, like finish your things because you got us to deal with. And I just thought that that's how like your brain worked, and like that's just how it is. But it was affecting me. So I was like, then I don't want to that affect my child. So I just I learned that. You just push it away. And I guess it's another form of meditation, right? Mm -hmm. And being in control of your mind. And so it's a huge gift. And yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree with um, that mindset because I, I struggled with the chatter for a long time. And I've gotten better at just saying, okay, like it's in my head. Let's write all the things down that I need to do so I don't lose it because I'm bad mm -hmm. for, oh, I forgot to do that. And yeah. then it's like, well, now I have to do it now or I'll forget to do it later. Yeah. And so I write everything down. And then Sundays are like my day where Rebecca and I do nothing. And like, mm -hmm. it's a lot of work because I like, I always like to try and accomplish something and mm -hmm. I'm just my personality. But I definitely understand that. Can you tell us a little bit more about what it was like to to meet your husband and what things you admire about him and what it's been like to see him become a father. Sure. I mean, so I think the funniest part or the most interesting part is just that from the outside, we might have seemed like very two different people. Um, I mean, we are two different people. But when we were talking, it was just like the overlap and the connections and the finishing each other's sentences and just like the yes, yes, you get it was was amazing. And we just talked so, we talked on all of our dates so late into the night and he had to get up early and it was just like, we just talk, 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 talk. Um, but from the outside, like, he met me at the bank, which I probably looked more like this. But when I wasn't at the bank, I was playing roller derby, which we had like an alter ego that I was Molly Mayhem. My number was 666. I had like blood coming down my face. I liked metal music. I went to metal concerts. Um, and I mean, that's all great on its own, but there was an element too that I was going through a lot of stuff and um, putting up a lot of like barriers and walls and being hard and like, cause I didn't want to be hurt and trying to like control the situation. And so there was a lot of that kind of like, I'm tough and like projection kind of out there that people wanted to believe that, then cool, I was happy with that. And he saw right through it and was just like, this is you. And this is like how we, like some of the values that we share. And um, yeah, whereas other people were like, oh, he seems like <laughs> quiet and uh, like reserved and like, like, how do you guys work? Right. And it's more like, oh, he works late. He likes going to bed at a reasonable time. Whereas I was like avoiding things and like staying up super late and like, yeah, probably doing things I probably shouldn't have been. Um, but yeah, so kind of met at a weird time. From the outside, it kind of might look like that we were opposites, but we had a lot of similarities. Um, a lot of similarities and just different routes in our life. Like I had kind of a typical like middle, upper middle class family. Like I um, was very fortunate for a lot of things like... Um, they encouraged me to go to post-secondary. I could live with them until I was like early 20s. Um, they helped me save money that way. Um, just that real that support um, system. And um, like, yeah, university is not for everyone, but that's the path I chose. He didn't have that choice. He was very smart. He had um, opportunities to go to these universities. And um, 
basically when he was getting ready to graduate, uh, his, his dad, who he's living with, um, was deciding to move and he was like, you can come with me or not. And he was moving to a very small town probably something an 18 year old boy did not want to move out of like the town he's known for like the majority of his life to like some back East, like small town. So he chose to stay and he had to get like multiple jobs and a big instant like adult, right? Yeah. Like, what does that mean? We both still feel like we're adults. We have a baby. Like that's not real, but yeah. I don't think you ever feel that way. But anyways, he had to mature pretty quickly. And, um, I just respect that. Um, out of like you can see that that's you know how he kind of grew um he has a really strong like work ethic and um sometimes they have to i think remind him to like like he is not boring by any stretch of the imagination but he will tell me that i'm like i bring the fun into him and i help through my own like learnings like and to like have fun and to just embrace the like absurdity of life sometimes and like quirks like I and this is again like having a child is kind of like never really thought of wanting to have kids when I was younger um but I appreciated their like curiosity and just their point of view and like oh this like little rock looks cool and like just like why not like you're never too old to like appreciate like some cool rock or leaf on the ground and so I'd point these things out to him and he just he liked it and yeah it was like kind of a breath of fresh air it's what he needed when you're hyper focused on something right you need it's like the yin yang you need the both sides of things right so I think we complement each other very well and um I don't know, there's so much insecurity and fear, I think, when you bring a child into this world. Um, like, how are we going to be? And, you know, um, yeah. And he, he again, is, like, really awesome. Uh, it's awesome to see him as a dad. That calmness. Uh, I had to have a emergency C-section when I first, yeah, like, I... So when I was telling you that he was like, you're hiding your pain from her. Uh, he like was like, you please come and check her out. So I had a, I went into the bathtub and I was like having contractions and she came and checked and she's like, oh yeah, no, you need to go to the hospital right now. So they're like, thanks to him. So I went and as soon as we got there, like I had a home, I wanted to do the home water birth and that was kind of um, taken off the table right away. Uh, and then I was okay with having it at the Chilliwack Hospital. But um, I wanted to try to do it like the real way or whatever. I mean, like whatever way it works is the real way. Um, I didn't really want to have a C-section, but that like as soon as I went in there, they were like, he's in distress. Like every time you're having a contraction, as soon as you hear that your baby's not doing a good job, like, yeah, you just want to get them out and make sure that like, you, yeah. So I like had one tear and then, cause again, oh, releasing control. And you know, there's that plan. Um, and so you just, yeah, you, you adjust and he's just, again, he's just having him there as like that calming presence. And we, it was amazing staff. It was a kind of adrenaline rush, um, had an amazing midwife, got him latched straight away. And then because it was COVID, we weren't allowed like any visitors. And I can't say like that. I really minded that we had our own private room for a couple of days and the amazing supportive nurses. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, just, it's awesome to have someone who you just are excited to do life with. Right. And like, you don't really know what it's going to look like. Um, but yeah, he was very supportive. I mean, having to recover from a C-section, he had to do a lot actually. Like he, I didn't change a diaper for like, I think the first week or two. Um, so he was doing a lot of that. 
Um, he, I also maintain he doesn't need as much sleep as I do. He'll agree to that. Um, but yeah, and then I feel like early on, before we had the baby, he was kind of like, he didn't even know, like he wanted to touch my stomach and it's hard to have that connection because you're not feeling like them from the inside. And he was like, I don't know, like maybe like we'll bond more when he's like a full functioning like human like an adult no no no, he didn't say that but like more of like when they're like five or six and I'm like okay so what's what about until then right but like in his brain he just was like like he like like other people's babies are cute but like he doesn't know what to do with them like he just didn't feel that connection and he's like well I hope I'm like I'm sure we'll feel that connection with my own my own baby I'm like you'll you'll be fine like I'm sure it'll work out (laughs) who knows right I'm a better workout and um yeah, I think there's just like a natural inherent connection there. And I feel like he's like blossomed into this role more than he ever thought he would. Um, there's so many positives of him like that, again, like complement mine, like ADHD. Sometimes it's hard to multitask, um, do things on time. I was late for this, <laughs> this interview. Um so yeah, you're trying to like hit bedtimes, nap times, and like I'm like, oopsie, like that's a half an hour ago. Whereas he's more regimented and able to like maintain those like tight deadlines. So um, babies apparently thrive on consistency. So he's really good at that. And I've been back to Ben City now for about a month, three days a week. So I wake up, he goes, does his work thing, comes back. I've had like an hour with Olin, then he takes over and I get ready and go to work. They come visit me on my lunch break, but I mean, like he, he takes care of him three days a week and like, of course, like he can, why not? Like it's his baby too. But, uh, they, it's cute. They bond, they have their little things now. Like he already has this like little personality. He's like pointing and yeah, it's just so awesome to, to see that. That's <laughs> awesome. Can you tell us a little bit about what Wayne does and what he's involved in? Yeah, um, I mean, he, it was interesting when I first um, met him, I was like, are you like a spy or something? Like, what do you do? Because he worked, like, yeah, we'd have these late night talking sessions, and he's like, I gotta get up early, and I'm like, yeah, like, what do you do? And he was working from home, um, working for IBM, which I was like, well, what does that mean, right? Like, IBM's massive. And so he actually worked um, at a Israeli tech startup company that was based out of someone's home and it was more just like lead generation like he was calling like banks typically um, and connecting them with salespeople for like security software and this sort of thing and these companies were really like innovative and like enough so that IBM thought a worthy business to buy out and so he yeah was working for IBM at the time but he did that for a few years and um they eventually were going to get him to commute out to Richmond. And he's like, I've worked from home for like five years. Like, I don't need to go into an office to do this job. And so another Israeli tech company, like word got around that he was really good. And so they um, asked him to join their company, could work from home, obviously. He wasn't going to commute to Tel Aviv, Israel. And um, he took that contract and he worked there for a year. Didn't renew the contract. Um paused for a little bit then he worked for another one that actually flew him out to Israel yeah that was but it was such a small startup company and I mean they're paying money to fly people out like maybe they weren't quite ready and so that kind of fizzled out um the company itself and so there was like really not a lot of work for him to do and so he decided to kind of switch um switch up the game and uh 
do something else. But he's like, again, very entrepreneurial. Like we couldn't see him like going, working at like a bank or anything like that, like nine to five, like he needs to be in control of his own um, kind of stuff. So he right now over COVID, he actually got licensed for life insurance and mutual funds. Um, Unfortunately, he hasn't had a lot of time to really hone those skills, but um, yeah, he did that. And then when I met him, he actually um, was opening a business with one of his friends that he like owns it with and uh, Jim's Pizza and Sardis. And um, so, yeah, he went from like working there. That was one of his like three jobs at a high school. He managed it for a little bit. Then he got injured and that's why he actually took the computer job and not at work. And then they had the opportunity to to buy it. So they did. And um, yeah. And so... That's just, yeah, that's his life, basically. That's amazing, because I think Jim's Pizza is like an institution in Chilliwack. Like, it's got that really community support behind it. Yeah, I remember working at Stream. That was, like, a a big deal. You got, like, a, I think for $10, you got, like, a large (laughs) four-topping. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, he's just, um, yeah, and again, really interesting that he worked there for so long, and then that's kind of what brought the opportunity you never know what kind of connections you're making or where your path is going to lead to and yeah yeah I think that you and him set an amazing example on how to work as a team on how to approach adversity and I think the financial literacy pieces I uh, a part I hope people really take away from this is trying to connect to someone to help you on your path no matter Mm -hmm. whether or not you need like a really developed plan or just some general tips and guidance on how to do better because I think that that's something so many people are lacking and there's such shame with admitting that you don't know and Mm. knowing what questions to ask about TFSA, RRSP, like it's so much jargon that it really Mm -hmm. discourages people and I think that you make floating fitness health so much more accessible for, for people because these are complex topics and often with I think the wrong spokesperson behind mm-hmm. it often with places like banks you've got people who are way too professional and way too mm-hmm. hard to connect with same with um, health and wellness and going and trying to get yourself some help those often I find those people are a bit too pushy Mm -hmm. to the point where it discourages me because they perhaps oversell that all my ailments are going to be cured yeah or they try and sell me on another byproduct that doesn't interest me Mm -hmm. and so I think that you do this amazing job of being like accessible to everyone wherever they're at and I think that that's something I hope people really get out of this because I think it's really hard for people to let go of some of their own biases some of their own assumptions about how the world should be could be would be if they were in charge and mm-hmm. your ability to just kind of say where are you at and let's let's move from wherever position you are in the best way we can so it's a huge example for all of our listeners and i really appreciate you being willing to take the time oh thank you so much thank you and i think we did over three hours jeepers i figured we would <laughs>